It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, a return visit from musician and songwriter Ken Queter. There's a lot of people catching Pokemon these days. Did you hear the controversies today? People were doing it at the Holocaust museums and stuff, which you, know, you cannot, you know, you can't do it. I mean, like, they're like, we're like saying, please, like, I think you have to talk to the Pokemon, uh, you know, whoever is the creator or whatever. But, you know, there are inappropriate places. So I have no, I don't even know what Pokemon is. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I just saw it tonight. It's like something called Pokemon. So here I am talking about, I'm like a politician. I'm talking about something like, fuck, I don't know anything about. <laughs> you know. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave comments for us there or email us at Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please take a minute to leave a review over at our page on iTunes. As this show posts, I just finished up the fourth and last of the double bills I curated and hosted as part of Andrew's Video Vault at the Rotunda in West Philly, a criminal women double feature with 1976 forgotten Stockard Channing vehicle, Sweet Revenge, directed by Jerry Schatzberg and shot by the legendary Vilmos Zygmunt, who shot McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the deer hunter in Close Encounters. It was, it was fun to see Stockard as a car thief, partnered with the great comic actor Franklin Ajay, yet the film is admittedly slight. The co-build feature, an obscure Truffaut film from 1972 titled A Gorgeous Girl Like Me, was more of a revelation. A rare broad comedy from Truffaut that stars Bridget Lafont, who Truffaut featured in his breakthrough short Les Mistons in 1957. The film finds her character in prison, spinning a very sympathetic story to a sociologist about how she ended up there on a murder charge. A New Yorker critic listed it recently as among his favorite Truffaut films, and seeing it was a reminder that many of filmmakers' most interesting works are the projects that critics find it difficult to categorize among a director's past successes. I hope to be back soon in the new year with a new lineup of cinematic oddities, but the Video Vault series continues on Thursday, September 8th, with a double bill of particularly brutal World War II tales, including Eli Klimov's 1985 stunner Come and See, and Augusti Via Roma's 1987 Nazi doctor's tale in a glass cage, both hosted by author Sam Dane of the Satanic Pandemonium blog. That's September 8th at the Rotunda on Walnut at 40th in Philadelphia. Now on to the return of the most popular guest we've had on the Fun to Know podcast, musician and songwriter Ken Queter. Our two-part episode, numbers six and seven, squeezed in a lot of Queter's story growing up in Philadelphia and playing hundreds of gigs a year for decades on stages between New York and Baltimore, but mainly in or around Philly, where Queter is nearly a household name. In the year and a half since he's been on the show, Ken has been the subject of a feature-length documentary, Adventures of a Secret Kid, The Mass Hallucination of Ken Queter, directed by John Huddlemeyer, which has screened locally and is currently playing the festival circuit. We discussed the film, and as you'd guess, a lot more, in a slightly melancholy conversation in which Ken recounts a number of friends who have passed away over the years, but also touching on Pokemon, Miley Cyrus, maintaining friendships in the world of social media, playing in prisons and casinos, the secrets of Lithuania, Philly freeform radio pioneers, the secret accelerator of the cocaine epidemic, and the proper way to handle yourself in a crack house. 
We'll hear some excerpts from The Leaves, the mysterious Nikki Jane, and the performance poet pioneer Marty Watt, a particularly fascinating character we've been trying to wrangle for the show for a while now. Ken also brings his guitar, and we'll hear a trio of tunes before the episode runs its course. Hold tight, we'll start the thing off with a particularly choice tune from Queter's catalog. I'm turning myself into two. Yeah, it wasn't that much what I have to do. 
So, uh, you have anything you want to talk about? Are you even thinking about anything on your mind lately? Plenty, but I, I uh, well, let's do a couple questions and we'll get into it because I'm still like unfreezing my brain from uh, hanging out last night at some place I shouldn't have stopped into, you know. So, uh, well, you know, I ask questions. Yeah, yeah, okay. So. <laughs> you've, uh, it's, it's been interesting uh, to see the, the modern Ken Queter. You've always had a, a rabid fan base and uh, you know a lot of energy with the people around you but now on the social media you've really you know have a following on uh, i know at least facebook i don't know whether you do, do twitter or any of those i, other I did things. do twitter uh I've, I've done all that twitter didn't seem to work out for me because i i i was i, I was a little bit too impatient with twitter i i expected something more than that and then for fun I did Snapchat, you know, and then I, and then the Instagram. So, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of all these and I've, I've done, like, yeah. the funny thing is, it's like, say I'm doing a gig, uh, like in Philadelphia and I'm trying to get people out. I'll more than like likely use Facebook because for whatever reason, Facebook will generate some kind of response. If I, if I do a gig like in Boston or New York City and I put it on Facebook I don't, and I go to those gigs and really nothing from Facebook, but if I take out a napkin or a piece of blank paper and I write Ken Queter invades New York City May 31st 2017 or something I will I will get an amazing response on Instagram when I'm outside the city of Philadelphia and I don't know why that is but but now I don't use Instagram all that much I mean the whole thing is kind of like self-paralysis because <laughs> like like you're on there then you can't get off I mean all these things are like rabbit holes you know but but in terms of promoting a Queter event Instagram has done well for me outside, the, like Philadelphia. If I'm in, like you know, Washington D.C. or New York City, I'll get response. Uh, I wonder, is it an age thing? I wonder, is it the younger, uh, the younger crowd who might have met you going to college here in Philadelphia? A lot, it's, 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 it's a lot of that. Yeah, it's mostly a younger crowd. It could be uh, folks that are still at uh, Temple and or University of Penn, or have graduated in the last couple of years. They are more likely to be. Uh, on Instagram, you know, I mean, Facebook, I do believe, I mean, when, like, no, I'm not like a democratic, <laughs> demographic <laughs> expert, but I think Instagram definitely is a younger. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I've heard young people say Facebook is where their parents are at. Yeah, stuff like that. So like, uh, which is another thing, like Facebook, if anybody who's like anywhere approaching my age, they generally, they don't even, like, they don't even come out for the Philadelphia uh, performances like because they're, you know, they're they're at home, you know, and they're not coming out because Ken's is some goofy bar. <laughs> I mean, it really, it really, like I see people come out like they're in their 50s or whatever, and I'm like, I really appreciate you coming out because I know the couch, is, I know you like the couch too, you know, and they do have like, uh, you know, what do you have, like you have cable TV and people are paying for that. They're like, well, they, they know that cable TV is probably going to have something pretty good. They go yeah. to Queter Show, there could be like, he Ken might be good, but it might be a challenging like environment. There are people who did come out to come out to see me at a couple of places. I will not mention the names of the places, but they were. I heard from them like the day later saying they're never going to come see me at any of these particular places because someone next to them was really bothering them the entire night, and they were thinking they could have been home watching like something on TV, you know. Uh, Part of the fun of coming out to see Ken is sometimes Ken can be inflammatory. Oh, that happens too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but I wonder with, with like social media, you seem to walk a real uh, a real nice line of uh, 
like not getting yourself in in trouble. Well, I, what happens is like last night I posted something about being a sociopath. I, I took it down real quick. I was like <laughs> like semi blacked out at the moment, and then I re- reread it, and, I, and then, then I was like, man, I gotta. But there are things that go up, but they come down pretty quick. Uh, you know, so uh, I don't it, know. Here in the summer of, of 2016, though, it's really hard not to get pulled into sort of political conversations. Oh, I'll tell you what I know all about that. And of I, I figure you must have a philosophy on this because you I seem do have to philosophy. extract yourself from it pretty well. And I'll tell you because um, I. In, in the old days, I did get involved a little bit, and then I got. In, I spent so much time defending myself. To pe- it's almost, it's like that uh, Paul Simon line: "A man hears only what he wants to hear and disregards the rest." And in, in, the, in the song called "The Boxer," and like some of these people, everybody that's pretty much on, that would re- respond to if I put a, up a controversial uh, statement that I believe in, um, I'm going to have arguments on the left side of me and on the right hand side. And a lot of these people are like pretty good friends. So I like the thing is, is like I was going. Uh, I feel really strong about what I was saying, but like, to, at the point of like, then I'm like, oh man, I'm going to lose. I, you know, there's some really good friends on that have varying points of view, and um, so I, a couple of years ago, I was like, I'm going to stay out of this because, uh, because, because I'm telling you, man, like, I'm still completely. I can be really. I mean, when I was younger, I would get into some firefights with people. I mean, I just like. You know, particularly club owners and whatever, and that still does exist inside me. But I've had to tamp it down, so I can stay alive playing gigs. But, but I can get into a really big argument, and then, you know, like uh, I, I mean, there's there's still like that that like angry reptile inside of Queter, uh, that um, that's there. I have to control them, you know, because and whether it's a political argument or whatever, or like uh, I I did an outburst. Um, I'm not going to name the place, but after the movie premiere, we went somewhere and I brought a bunch of people and under the assumption that they were going to do something, take care of me about something, you know. But that didn't happen. But now, I had already been through, like, really a lot of vodka by the time I got there. <laughs> and um, I didn't, sh- I was supposed to show up with a mic stand, but in my mind, they were supposed to, but it, it was really, I, it should have been footage because it was like, it was really out of, it's out of the character for the, recent Ken Quitter, but it was very much in character of the 27-year-old Quitter. That was like literally a pretty dramatic thing going on between me and the people in charge of that, that, that venue. So, and that went on for a while. It wasn't like one minute. <laughs> and then there was a pu- I got into a pushing match with some people and it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of like a roundabout way of mentioning that. I can definitely, I just decided to like not get involved with people that I know closely who have conflicting points of view with me or whatever, you know. Well, I mean, I really see I really see the point of, of people saying that, you know, entertainers have every right to, you know, talk about their political views and everything, and, and yeah. that just because they're an artist certainly doesn't mean that they don't have political views. But on the other hand, too, I think if you're doing art, uh, you know, who knows if you, you really want that sort of political alignment to be mixed in with people's thoughts of, of, of what you do as, as an artist. Like, I see just as valid a point in sort of keeping yourself uh, politically neutral as an artist as well. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I think everybody kind of knows where my head's at in terms of, like, I think everybody should think outside of the box. That's kind of sort of revolutionary, but not, every, not everybody can. But... I mean, you know, and there's no doubt that Ken Queter is the the champion of the outsider. Oh, uh, totally. I mean, yeah, you know, and um, you know, but to get into a firefight with somebody about certain things, uh, and you never change their mind. That's the thing, because I, because I would. That was the thing. I was trying. I was like, no matter what I told you, 
it's it, you're, the only thing, only thing that changes it that we're not friends. You know? <laughs> but I mean, like I could put, like mathematically lay out my points of view about some political thing or social thing, and people just they just want to hear the echo of their own thoughts. You know? yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know what, I'm just tired of arguing with people, and because I know, I'm, of course, I know I'm right, and then they <laughs> think they're right, and. Um, there is a phrase I've heard, you can't argue somebody out of an argument that they never argued themselves into. True. Like a lot of people are just defending sort of an accepted knowledge and uh, what passes for a common knowledge. Yeah, Yeah. They, they assume that everybody thinks exactly like they do. So so that's, that's why I'm not really on there doing that or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have some good friends and we have mutual friends that are on there. And I know that, uh, you know, guys in my <laughs> band and my guys who may have managed me i mean they have like really every day it's a you know there's there's no pictures of cats or dogs on there it's usually like something else it's more or less i mean kind of like our buddy up in uh, frenchtown he does it he just keeps it really narrow you know i'm talking about the poet yes oh sure so he doesn't really engage a big thing he'll engage him he'll he'll argue about dogs rights and things like that on the uh on the on the internet which is it doesn't piss anybody off, I don't think, pretty much. Sometimes he'll, he'll delve into a, a flurry of sort of uh, Swiftian satire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where he'll just go on some very surreal uh, uh, rant, which always seems to drag somebody into confusion. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that guy. I would love someday we got to get together all... And uh, yeah, yeah, because uh, I thought I actually thought I wonder if Dan's got a surprise for me. I wonder if Marty Watt's going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Marty Watt, I, I I have recorded him a few times, but yeah. uh, I one of the horrible audio accidents I've had, uh, software accidents, was uh, uh, a hard drive that crashed with Marty Watt interviews on it. Uh, but it's I, too I, much I, for the hard drive. Yeah, yeah, there <laughs> too many ideas. But uh, I haven't given up on the idea of, of getting Marty. Uh, you know, for an episode of the Fun to Know podcast, for sure. Because he had he had a technical problem at his movie, like was it ten months ago? The one around oh, yeah. seven at. Um, were you there? I, don't know I was. I was absolutely there. Yeah, yeah his yeah, return. Yeah. Uh, it was in the old neighborhood too. Wasn't it was uh, like thirty third in uh, Palton Street or something like that. It's funny because you know that building there was like where I did some of my first folk shows, and Marty, I'm assuming, did some of his first poetic, you know, poetry. Uh, Things I would assume, because I know I was there. Yeah, I think he might have even performed with was he performed somewhere with Patty Smith back in the day. He probably, yeah, he used to always do um, the bookstore down there on uh, across from Dirty Frank's. They, they did things together there. Uh, Patty saw him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like my point of view is Patty kind of was influenced by Marty Watt, and uh, and I don't think she ever announced that. But but yeah, they did things. They did a handful of things in Philadelphia back in the. Uh, Early seventies. Well, know. well, tell me about Marty Watt. When did when did you first meet Marty? When did you become hip to? I'll tell exactly when I met him. Yeah. It was like uh, nineteen seventy one at thirty six oh one Locust Walk uh, at a place called the Catacombs, which was in the basement of the Christian Association Building, which now is called the Arch, but also ended up housing the Palladium that I ended up bartending. It was a very bizarre thing, and I I, I used to hear about this place called the Catacombs because. Uh, WXPN would talk about, you know, when it was really folky back in those days, they were like, yeah, come this Friday and Saturday, there's folk music, and I think maybe it was 1972, so, you know, I'm going there, like, really thinking, you know, I'm into pure folk music, but at the same time, I just saw David Bowie, right, doing Ziggy, so I'm, like, trying to combine David Bowie and, like, Tom Pax and Bob Dylan together, so I'm, like, showing up, you know, I'm doing these open mics, and I'm doing, like, early pretty raucous queeter 
which was contemporary to me, it was like where folk music should be going. And like, you know, I had brought a whip with me and firecrackers and they'd never seen anything like that. And like, they like really were mad at me. But when I went to the men's room, I'll never forget it. Marty Watt walks, came in and he goes, man, that was really like, I didn't know who this guy was because that was really great, man. The firecrackers, the whip, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, and it really, this was like folk purist, cherry tree co-op guys, you know? So, um, so we became like, we met there and then, um, then I would go, I would go back again. And then, uh, eventually I really, uh, alienated the, the cherry tree gang to the point where, um, they, they were essentially like really folk Nazis. And then back then I didn't let anybody off the hook. So I would like visit those guys like in the middle of the night and like throw <laughs> potatoes at their window and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, and they did found, they found out it was me. It was a big mess. Uh, but, um, but we were really, we were bitter enemies, uh, but I'm just saying, but, but I ended up, to, you know, meeting Marty Watt, who was, was one of the greatest, you know, to me, was a very significant medium because I kept an eye out on what he was doing. He was doing, at that point, performance poetry, and I would go see him play. He wasn't necessarily coming to see me play, but I would go see him play, you know. Um, for what, you know I mean, he was really just a force that, you know, I was 20 years old, and I wanted to keep improving, and, and with certain guys around town, and Marty was one of the guys that was, like, really fertile, powerful and focused and great and like just like when you saw him you're like oh my i can't believe this guy is only 18 feet away from me because he was to me he was already international but he was playing like he was playing places called latage down at third in a third in like uh, race which I, I went to a number of those shows those shows was just just i mean you know to this day when i do my performance when i put my arms out that's a pure marty watt ripoff i mean like <laughs> like, like they do that that's marty watt you know and uh you know uh, you know so, you know, so he did really great up until, I guess, the early 80s, and then he just decided to retire. But I always felt lucky having seen him when he, when he was young. And uh, I guess you would say in his prime, I'm sure he's still great, but he doesn't want to deal with the stuff that I deal with on a daily basis, which is like, you know, <laughs> setting up a room, talking to the club owner. You know, he doesn't, he's, he doesn't want to deal with that, and I respect that. But I still like to go see him perform if I could. But I think he's kind of, he's performing the way he, I, mean, I guess he's he's through with it. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I'm sure he's still, I've seen he's written some great poetry recently on Facebook, but uh, but yeah, Marty Watt, man. Yeah, I first discovered him, uh, XPN uh, had some recordings, I think Bob Bell made. Bob Bell, yes, yeah. Years ago, and uh, I found them completely jaw-dropping and galvanizing as a teenager and like had to had to find out more. And there was, you know, very hard to follow that thread from, uh, you know, a hometown in South Jersey as a, as a teenager. Yeah. But I think you were, I finally, I think I ran his name past you after I met you. Yeah. Uh, probably. In, in like 85 or so. And you, I think you turned me on to a, a performance tape that you had of yeah. Marty Watt that, uh, yeah, completely, I still have it here somewhere. It's a, And you know, there's, there is a, um, you can find some of his stuff on the internet. Did you, it's like. On SoundCloud, it's under Streets of, London is it or? something like that? It's a French guy. It's a French name who's, who did the recordings, uh -huh. and because uh, I think he was up at the pyramid. Or he was up in New York, and he's he's doing like uh, the miracle and the maniac poem. Did you ever hear that one? Yeah. <laughs> he's a, she's a miracle. He's a maniac, <laughs> setting himself on fire. What a pair! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> is incredible. And then he's got like you're thinking of a number from one to ten. What is it? What is it? You know. He's like, you know, he's like going along. It's like these incredible performances, you know, just yeah. unbelievable. 
Yeah, man. I was like, I, I saw him like ten times. It was like each time was tremendous, you know. It's called uh, it's called uh, call me the surprise ending. <laughs> call me anything. Call me the only problem you have with your apartment. Call me something you thought you made love to, but now that you think of it, you must have been wrong. Call me the only TV that you know that has to use your bathroom. Call me the face of bad reception. But don't call me the vegetable that rots into meat. I hate when people call me that. Just don't call me that. Call me the reason you're suing your exterminator. Call me the unshaven brain. Call me the dentist of your vagina. But don't call me the wart on your lust. Call everyone you know. Dial and dial and call me anything. But don't call me. Don't call me. My phone is hooked up to a ton of explosives. Call me and I'm a goner. Just one ring and I'm dead. <laughs> And uh, I saw him at the at the uh, Taj, and then at the old Hot Club, and then uh, then I would go to the rehearsals because he had like some of the secret kids were playing, like my keyboard player Chris Larkin was playing with him, Paul Dugan, Bob Bell was part of that gang. Uh, Wilson. Uh, Joey Wilson. Joey Wilson. Yeah, I know yeah. that was a, a sort of circle as well. Oh yeah, well, Joey wasn't in the band, but Joey and Marty grew up together, and they were just ridiculously talented guys. I mean, Joey was like. Joey Wilson was one of the great songwriters I ever met, you know, and I mean, I always say the highest compliment I can give anybody is to be jealous of him. I was very jealous of Joey. I mean, he was just, he was just, uh, he was just great, man. And uh, uh, one time I, I, I fell asleep. Uh, he was crashing in this room somewhere, right? So uh, on near Bainbridge. So I fell asleep where his room was. He, I don't know where he was, but I fell asleep in there. But when I woke up the next day, I was like, what's on my back? And I was, was with Joey Wilson's songwriting book. So I was like, let me see how he does this, you know. <laughs> so I was like kind of being snooping. And, um, and I, I, was, I, always, I knew he was a pretty disciplined guy, but I didn't realize he was way more disciplined than I was because each page was like, it was like a big fat book. I was watching how one song would turn, how it was developing. And I was just watching his, uh, his you know, editing process and I was really impressed I was which made me double jealous <laughs> I was jealous to begin with then I got double jealous I was gonna where I don't have that discipline but yeah Joey Wilson one of the greats yeah you don't really hear much about him now but like uh, to me I, I he was an internationally uh, talented guy you know yeah I mean you, you've been in Philadelphia for you grew up in Philadelphia I guess you've been in Philadelphia for decades now but you've seen a lot of talent that has gone sort of undocumented or, 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 you know, barely documented over time, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah guys that scare me. There were uh, um, guys that you'll never hear of again. I mean, um, I, I was always a big fan of Scott McClatchy. You know, nobody, you know, like I never really talk about him, but I used to go see him at Walsh's. He was doing Walsh's back in the early 90s. And it was like, this guy was a great songwriter. And then one day he just disappeared. Like, you know, I was a big, huge fan of, of Nicky Jane. Play, you know, do you know who Nikki Jane is? No, no, yeah. She had this incredible voice, uh, kind of influenced by, um, I can't remember her name, it'll come to me, but um, she was a German woman, but did real well in France. Uh, Nana Hagen? No. Lena uh, Lovitch? No, it's earlier <laughs> than that. But she has like that real, I guess that deep voice. Uh, Nico? No, not her either, but she's great. <laughs> but prior, earlier. Um, okay. Uh, Marlena Dietrich. That's it, Marlene Dietrich. She's like Marlene Dietrich. And, and plus she plays a saw. I mean, like, so oh, she would wow. do like, um, say she would do a take on like, uh, uh, she would be doing, uh, what's that, uh, Smoke on the River? Smoke, smoke on the Water. Smoke the, on, you know, on the Water. Purple right? song. And then uh, she, she would, 
she would play the melody on the song, and then she would go into the chorus with her vocals. It was like, she would do all these really, really clever things and do some of the cabaret stuff, German cabaret from back in the day, and then do her own songs. Now, I was a huge fan of Nikki Jane. What, what year was she around here? She was around, like, I would run into her, like, um, very late 90s, you oh. know, like 97. Let me see. Hold on a second. Wait. Really, yeah, like 99, early 2000, something. And then she was around for about eight years. Like, I was aware of her for, like, eight years, and we did some things together. We did some shows together, and I was always excited uh, to be in her company because I was she just there was nobody else in Philly doing that thing, and she was doing it so well. And then one day, she said she was going to take a trip to um, North Korea for a vacation, right? <laughs> and I, I said, you know, why North Korea? And she goes, I'm kind of a fan. Like you know, she was just she was just like she wanted to go somewhere which really opposite of what she's used to, like yeah. like the Western culture. And then I know she came back, but I never saw her again. Like, I mean, she came back, and, and that was it. Like, uh, I, 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 I literally, I don't know what happened. You know, it's, it's, you know it's, she, she uh, was, she wanted to see, like, what was going on over there or something. Like, Dennis Rodman, because he went over after her. She, like, was a pioneer. Something happened. She came back, and I actually put on Facebook a couple times, does anybody, does anybody know what happened to Nikki Jane? It's like, nobody knows. It's like, and I mean... You know, I mean, she was so great. think of you as really having the, uh, the 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 pulse of the public you know uh, maybe maybe like a septa bus driver i feel like you're you're out amongst yeah, them you I know am, with yeah. regularity what's what's what? the here in the summer of 2016 what what is uh what are crowds like these days well, it really depends i mean like for for me like when i play yeah yeah some nights are busy some nights like it's really a bipolar experience like the night before you're like yeah man they got it next day it's like nobody there and you're playing to the backs of people who are really involved watching a tv screen but i get through it you know i get through it you know um but you have to really be flexible you know because most of the time you know i mean sometimes i'm the hero of the evening and more often than not i'm like sort of like a pest who's in the corner playing that wooden instrument that most people don't know about uh they know their grandparents played it and it's kind of corny and pest, pesty. Like you're back there with a banjo or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, it's like so, or like uh, like I got a little horse and buggy and I'm fixing it on a table. Yeah, I mean one of the things that happens it started happening about eight years ago is like when I'd be coming into like some places with a drummer or whatever, as we're coming in, it's it's evident that we're coming in with a bass and a drum. The people, the folks under thirty, are like they pull out their wallet. <laughs> Pull out the credit card. I'm out. You know, they don't want to have anything to do with it. As quick as it was like, there are a lot of people that aren't good to do live music, and we, uh, the rest, rest of us, were pretty good. Suffer for their their sins, you know. And uh, but there's a lot of great talent out there, man. You know, it's uh, a, lot, a lot of great players. I mean, um, I mean, what I do is so weird. I mean, like I do this solo thing. I mean, and I'm 
you know, I think I'm real good at it. But there's constantly, we're always getting fired, man. I mean, like, <laughs> this is the first time in, like, eight years. This week, it started last week, where I'm only doing two gigs a week. It's like, it's unbelievable. It's like, it, you know, it's always really available for this interview. <laughs> and I, I knew it was slowing down, but I knew it was going to slow down to a, a, a complete stop. Yeah, I mean, you made, you made a point of taking some time off. Though, but, I, but I did, but at the same time, I was helped along the way by like, don't bother coming back, dude. You know, we don't really understand what you're doing. So, but I, did, I thought, that's okay. I want to try to take it easy, like, you know, and relax, you know, and to, uh, you know, maybe catch up on this or catch maybe get on a short whatever. there's a lot of people catching pokemon these days from what i understand. you know what i just started reading about that i don't even know like i remember that was a thing like wasn't that digital in the beginning yeah yeah so why is it all big today what was the big deal uh, I, I only found out i think yesterday so i'm a little behind the by, behind the uh behind the thing too but but yeah they, there's it's a new app that you sign on to and i guess that you know they, they're actually what they're really doing is collecting gps information from you on where you're at yeah it's nice it's, and, i love it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but they uh, they put imaginary you know these Pokemon creatures in these spots, and if you go there, you can sort of capture them on your phone. And, right. But I. I but suddenly... there is. Did you hear the controversy today? Uh, with, where, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. and it's uh, understandable. <laughs> like if you go to like McDonald's, there's going to be a Pokemon pops up on the seat next to you. But people were playing doing it at the Holocaust museums and stuff, which you, know, you cannot, you know, you can't do it. I mean, like, they're like, we're like saying, please, like, I think you have to talk to the Pokemon, uh, you know, whoever is the creator or whatever. But, you know, there are inappropriate places. So I have no I don't even know what Pokemon is. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I just saw it tonight. It was like something called Pokemon. I know that Phil Sokola loved Pokemon. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I go, I'll go along with it. Phil likes it. It's okay. Then I saw today some controversy. Like, so here I am talking about, I'm like a politician. I'm talking about something I fucking I don't know anything about. <laughs> You know, now that's the kind of shit I might get on fucking Facebook and, and take take both sides of Pokemon or something. They're welcome to come. Maybe try to get more business at a Queter show. You're welcome to do Pokemon at a Queter show. You know, we welcome Pokemon. You know, there's been a lot of Pokemon spotted here. Uh, you know, in the last few days. That's yeah, because I just saw that today, Rob. It was like where somebody sent me something about Pokemon. I'm like. I mean, I, I thought that thing was over like 30 years ago, but it's yeah. back. I, I, but, I mean, it used to be a, a card game originally, and then I think it was a cartoon. So a lot of the yeah. people that are in their, I think, like late 20s, early 30s, it, it's, you know, it's in the, it's in the hard wiring for them. Cause but like, I, you know, I was hearing adults say, like, I have to go over to the mall. There's some Pokemon over there I want to get. Because I remember, like, Pokemon, I was like, I remember hearing about it. It was probably, like, early nine. I don't know when it came But Phil Sicole at that point was, like, 47. <laughs> so, like, you know, Phil was always into something really bizarre. So, so like... He's like, uh, I'm talking to him, and I go, what's going on, man? He's like, I'm into Pokemon. I'm like, what's that? So he starts explaining. So I'm like going, you know what? I'm probably not into Pokemon if I find out what it is. But that's Phil Sicola. So there's got to be some kind of really bizarre, perverted, like, uh, redeeming value in Pokemon. Because Phil was, like, total genius. Like, like the... Uh, to me, who's the guy that did Apocalypse Now? What was that uh, Francis Ford Coppola? Like, like, he, he, like Phil Sokol, I always think is like the, the Francis Ford Coppola of the, the Philadelphia. Like, like it really was. I mean, like the guy, like he was there with you know David David Bowie and early Springsteen. What, what did Phil do? He was a photographer. Okay, he was like the best man. It was like because I was in the early days, so I was getting a lot of photographs. People were photographing me, and but when Phil would come and he was he would like. You're going to stand over there. Like, it was no, like, it was no, like, uh, free-for-all. It was like, no, you're going to look that way. You know, it's like, and every time I saw photos of what he did, it was like, 
that's like an amazing composition, you know. And it went on for years. You know, he ended. He did Elvis Presley's final final tour. Like oh, he wow. was the photographer for that, you know. And um, so, uh, and he was all, you know, Phil was getting arrested. He was doing things that were like, he would have like rivalries with other photographers. And rather than just leave, let it be alone, he would like actively go after these characters. <laughs> then, he would, then he would end up in the court of law. And, you know, I mean, he was really a dramatic guy, but he was a genius. And he did a lot of things with the camera that were really like way ahead of their time. And, and then he got into... I think he got into like gan like he made a whole lot of money with the what do you call it those pinball machines he was doing that like in the city <laughs> and then um, and then but he became like he made he got very very wealthy uh-huh. and then he became a serious gambler down in um, Atlantic City yeah. and he was just like just he was like like you know like a, like a really eccentric gambler who like was like trying to beat the house all the time and I think he kind of. At the end, he lost a lot. You know, then he ended up living in a warehouse. I used to go to the warehouse, and the warehouse was like, I was not. I mean, if you could call him a hoarder, but he was a hoarder of the most elegant of taste of things. I mean, he would have like a microphone that was used in the Beatles' 1963 session in Hamburg, Germany. Then he would have like, he would have everything he had there was like one of a kind or two of a kind, and then. He had buttons. He's, I mean, when you went in there, it was like literally a, a treasure trove. You would love it because, like, I'm kind of like, I know this, I know that. But he would, like, have – he would have, like, 30 different versions of this famous photograph. And it, only Phil would have it, you know. And then he, but he lived in the warehouse completely against the law. You know, it's like a, a sink in there or something. And because uh, you'd go in there, and it's like – you know, you're like, where are you at, Phil? I'm back here. And then just, you pull this curtain, and it's like you're in, like, the cave with Marlon Brando at the apocalypse. And he's like, go to the grocery store. You know, like, you could sort of hardly see Phil. He was back there, you know, <laughs> like, like playing games or whatever. I'm not going to get into some other shit that could come back, but, like, really bizarre shit. And, um, like, he was illegal. And then and then, um, then he had to move out of the the. This, this enormous warehouse, because I think he was back on rent. So he moved, he had to move all this stuff to another warehouse, right? So he was coming to my bar. I was bartending because he could get free food. I would hook him up with some food. Like like the, the biggest burgers ever made at the Palladium. He called it, he made it, he's a daddy burger, like three gigantic, like a pound of meat, right? So so then he would become, he was doing, he was like Orson Welles at the end with the magic tricks, right? Because he's kind of getting, at this point, 47, 48, 49, like huge, right? But he's got like the Elvis shades on, and he's coming in, and everybody at the plane were kind of like, you know, people working there, like, they never saw anything like this guy. And he's doing all these <laughs> tricks on the bar tricks and card tricks and, like, you know, really like Orson Welles, like the stand-up routine. And so he be, he becomes, he befriends a couple people that were working at the Platinum that had fraternities at Drexel University, right? So <laughs> the day comes, he goes, I can, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to get, I got to move this stuff out. So, so one of the guys who's the leader of the fraternity, He's working with me that day, and I go, hey, hey uh, Ryan, do you, you know, do you, um, do you have any guys, uh, frat brothers would help out Phil, and Ryan loved Phil, because Ryan never saw anybody like this guy, <laughs> and he goes, oh, we'll give you a hand, you know, and uh, Phil goes, well, I don't have a lot of money, but uh, you guys can pretty much pick whatever you want, when you're done, you can break it back to the frat, you know, so they went, there were like 20 guys, it took them like a day and a half. And they moved, I mean, you're talking about 20 guys, like really strong fraternity guys. They went up to Conchahawka and they moved 
like I, who knows how many had to be a couple tons of stuff and put it into the new um uh, you know the new warehouse right so because i went over there too i was at the and then ryan they all got like because I, I can't remember what they got but they got like like stuff that was like legendary like 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 Something was used in like a movie, like that was the actual lamp, and like Phil was was always getting these things, and you know he gave them the most bizarre. You know, of course they got the pinball machines, and they got yeah. like maybe like a puppet make something that makes puppets. I mean, I've, I don't ever went to the fraternity, but it it still probably has Phil stuff over there. You know, <laughs> I mean he had like like photographs of Elvis. I mean, like he had like the most. No one had these photographs. Elvis, Early Springsteen, David Bowie, just you know you two when they were young, but stuff didn't. That he was aware these people are going to be in his mind. They're going to get big. You know, he's great photographs with these guys. You know, yeah. then he then he died. He just got sick, and then you know he got really unlucky with his health, and then he died. When, when did he pass away? Like July seventh, uh, I would say, because I saw him July fourth of two thousand four. So he died that week. You know, oh, wow. I remember I visited him, and then I brought my. I played a concert for him, and he was like really ill. And uh, he 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 was gonna die. He died like uh, that week. It was really sad. He was you know he was like even you know we had been together when we were young like, and then it was like twenty years. We he was he was on to his other thing. Then like the last five years of his life, he was coming to my bar because he knew he could get like a daddy burger, and like and and he he had an audience. There was all the kids liked him, and you know and I was always glad that they helped him move that that uh, that warehouse because that, that that was his whole life. He lived in there. He lived. This is, are his photographs uh, somewhere? Did they survive? They're, yeah, but. Um, the, the uh, there are things that survive, but sad to say, and I mean, in the most tragic sentence I can come up with, at the end when he didn't he didn't come up with the rent. From what I understand, whoever owned the uh, warehouse didn't have the artistic sensibility of Phil. So he went in there. Phil had died. Phil had been sick for a while. He couldn't afford to move the stuff anywhere else, and he went in and dumpster man you know like we're talking about things that were like just historically amazing you know so yeah not everything but i mean some people have finally got what they could but it, it would have taken another fraternity of 20 guys and i mean it was like it was just i mean we're talking about really rare rare stuff and you and i know guys who have you have a lot of rare stuff here you know, Michael Tiersen has a lot of rare stuff. There's a lot of guys who have a lot of rare stuff. But to me, the kingpin, the king hoarder of rare stuff was like Phil Sokola. Because it wasn't just in recordings. It was like in salt shakers and in like leather jackets and, you know, blinds and candles and, you know, like Cheerio boxes. Yeah, Phil was one of the, the real... There's another guy that you don't really hear about, but uh, some people are glad he's not around because he was kind of causing problems. I mean, I could tell you something things off mic that you don't want to go on the program, which could be big offenses. But he was like a real artist, man. You know, it's like uh, just uh, Phil Sacola, man. Honest Chris Larkin, he kept the dogs barking. He wouldn't lie to you, and he wouldn't lie to me. There was trouble in the land, but he was an extraordinary man. Someday, his name will go down in history. It was back in 64, Chris came knocking on my door. He said, Ken, can I come in? I said, if you bring in a bottle of gin. Well, of course he brought in the gin. And of course I kept my word and let him come in. It was the same afternoon we both invented Tom and Jim. Yeah, honest Chris Larkin. 
lock it Kept the dogs barking Billy would not lie to you And he would not lie to me There was trouble in the land He was an extraordinary man Someday his name will go down in his Ed Shockey's not around anymore either. Another brilliant, you know, golden voice. Yeah. You know, really loved music. Really loved music. He, he came out to your shows as well. He too, came out he? to a couple, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, Ed was like not one to totally compliment Queter, but <laughs> he, the fact that he was there meant a lot to me because it kind of validated what I was doing, you know. So, And he really did have like a golden voice of the radio. I mean, like if you were to hear him, like there was some great you know radio people but he he did have a voice that was like whoa and uh at the end i remember i did one of my my last interviews with ed he was a true lover of music he really never stopped listening the older he got and he he was one of those guys that kind of got f stopped you know like, like he used to have a wide open broad you know spectrum of music and he was kind of told what to play and he was not happy about that because he was at WISP at the end and I think he was just you know at that point in time the day of the creative disc jockey was kind of yeah that yeah. was that was that would be on commercial radio uh, that was such a glory era and uh, you know it couldn't have lasted a, a decade even probably you yeah know? it was like seven years of like really great stuff and then it started to compromise well, what do you remember about radio back in that era I, I've heard you know snippets of things and heard some you know, as early as maybe 75 or so, but uh, it, it's, a, it's definitely a fleeting memory for me. Well, uh, well, I remember when it first started, so and I was like 17. Is that the Marconi experiment? Yeah, the, Mar the Marconi experiment was like, to me, was like a shrine to God. I, it was only for four hours a week. It was, I think it was once a week, I'm pretty sure. Oh. And in the beginning, just that they had like that song by the Beatles at the beginning, then you had like this. What was the song? It was Flying. Ah, dun, 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 the instrumental. Yeah, and which was one of my favorite songs at the time. You know, it's still I still love it. And um, but Dave Herman, his name was Herman. He called himself Herman. I mean, he had this voice. It was like it was totally different than the other voices. And that you know, on AM radio, it was really aggressive voices and stuff. And he was just for a second, just yeah. stop here talking about voices. I'm getting MMR in my headphones You're right kidding. now. <laughs> like wow. a band on the run is very slightly playing in That's the background. Amazing. How does that happen? Does for, it... uh, for some reason in Center City here, MMR bleeds through a lot on, on different stuff. Yeah. Anyway. But they, he was he, I think it was MMR. Yeah. And it was four hours on one night. Maybe was, yeah, I think it was just one night a week. Was it in Sunday the nights or? I think it was like Sunday. It was one of those unusual nights. And we all, I mean, people listened, man, with a pat. It was like, you know, revolutionary. What artists were they playing? Um, oh, God, like, um, let me see. Like, in, 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 what's Inagata De Vida? Iron Tom, Butterfly. Tom Paxton, The Fugs, uh, Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, um, Phil Oaks. You had like everything, the folk music. You had Johnny Cash. You certainly had Bob Dylan. But you had like... Um, I can't remember the real psychedelic bands. I mean, like, you know, like the Soft Machine or like Vanilla Fudge. Yeah, you know, all that stuff. And it was like, it was, it was like, I mean, with his commentary, it was like, this is culturally significant. The all these bands it, were saying pretty much the same thing, which was like, you know, you know, free yourself from the boxes that you're being put in by society. You know, whether it was the Fugs or which, what was that band? Journey to the Center. Uh, Ted, New Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes. The Amboy, yeah. Oh man, like, songs like that. You know, these are these are like because nobody else was you know, no one was playing that stuff on the AM radio. So, so you go there and you're like taking like a little bit of a trip, you know. And uh, 
it meant a lot. Like some of them, when I would go to school the next day, I'd be like nobody in my school was listening to except me, but maybe one other person. And then you know, you would hear about these guys like Frank Zappa. I was like 17 or 18. And then you find out these guys that are doing something no one had ever heard of, coming to Philadelphia at the Electric Factory at like 22nd and Arch. Then you would go there, the band or early Van Morrison or what's his name, John Mayall. All these guys, you know, and uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, these are these are all like they all broke through this. Uh, Were you out at shows much at that time? Not too much, but I went. I went. I uh, I did go down. I saw like at least six shows down at. Um, I didn't have any money. I mean, I was really broke. Who were the people you saw? I saw John Mayall. He had done that song "Room to Move," which was big. But by the time I saw him, which was like eleven months later, he wasn't doing. He wasn't having any of it. He he was. I'm growing as an artist. Like, man, dude, you know, like we were pretty disappointed. Um, I saw the band. I saw Van Morrison. Like I was like, where is he? Next thing I know, he's like standing. He'd walked out in the crowd, which was like, who would ever leave the stage and walk? Like and he's standing right next to me, Van Morrison. Um, who else was there? Jimi Hendrix. I missed Hendrix because I was such a pure folky. I wasn't going to go see Hendrix. My brother went to see him. Cream was down there. I can't remember who else. I saw a bunch, a bunch of people. I can't remember, you know, all the guys. But Frank Zappa signed my left arm, and I remember like I. I was showing that off to everybody at lunch the next day, and like nobody knew who he was. I didn't wash it for two weeks. Like Frank's up on my arm, you know. So, but yet it was like it was really a cultural thing, you know. Like Dave Herman was, uh, I used to call him up on the phone. It was really a big deal. Now, he was the DJ behind the Marconi experiment. Yeah, he was the DJ. Then, then you had Heisky Rooney McVaddy Azut the highlight. He started a thing on W, uh, not YSP, but uh, uh, WIBG. No, no, uh, WIBG was on the AM. I can't remember. It's a famous station. It was more like pretty much a rhythm and blues station. It but was it FM station? Yeah, it was FM. WDAS. Maybe it was DAS. It might have been that. He he saw he when he saw that there was money to be made in the uh, the new culturally different world, he did like a sort of a revolutionary thing. Then he also had a guy named My Father's Son on. I think his name was I forget what his name was Steve Lopez or something. Uh, uh, and he had a, My Father's Son had a great show. Then you had to like listen to High Lit, which was, you knew he was just like he was. He didn't. It's like Bing Crosby doing the Beatles or something. Like you kind of, you know, uh, it just it doesn't ring true. But you'd want to hear My Father, Son. He was great. Then you had Dave Herman. So those two guys were great. Then it, it got bigger and bigger over the years. Uh, and uh, that was really when when uh, there there was they found out there was a fortune to be made in rock yeah. and roll during that that era in the seventies. And they were they were anti-military. They were like all these. So then like years go by, and then I'm like I'm hearing like a. Uh, like five years later, I'm hearing like commercials for join the military. I was like, what happened? You know, but it, it, it took, it didn't take that many years. It took, let's see, 69, 70, 71. It was good for a couple of years, like real, almost pure. Then it got less pure and less pure. But, but then again, I mean, then MMR became like another thing, which was still cool. I mean, like they launched their careers. I mean, like, I mean, Ed Shockey got there and they launched careers like Bruce Springsteen. And yes. And some of those guys, you know, at that point, I mean, for good, Seven eight years, it was like disc jockeys could do what they wanted to do, pretty much. Well, that's the first place I heard the Talking Heads, and, yeah. You know, uh, a lot Tom of Waits, it, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. I remember hearing Alan Watts on the show on uh, oh yeah on Sundays they would uh, play some really unusual stuff. Uh, but I, I always I was tuned in on Sundays to, to to rock radio for all the oddball things they would play. There was one song that was uh, that I always never could find out who did it or what the artist was, but they Herman used to always play Oliver. Tweak was a stone freak, and I was like, and he stoned, and they stoned him in his day. You know, Marty Watt might know who did it, cause like it was a poem. It was only about fifty-five seconds long, but it was like Oliver Tweak was a stone freak, and they stoned him in his day. So I, I googled, I couldn't find it, but.
play oddball stuff like that which is like you know you're a young kid you're like, nobody i can't relate to anybody and you know like pretty much and like here's a guy speaking directly to me but then i find out that as years went by that there was somebody feeding um information somebody was doing all the research for herman uh. that it wasn't it was like sort of david letterman some, someone's feeding him the jokes or whatever you know <laughs> so because sometimes you just assume that the guy on stage is a guy. Sure. So, I mean, I'd, I'd heard that uh, there were a couple guys feeding him uh, information, you know. Interesting. Uh, and then they didn't get their due or something or whatever. <laughs> so, uh, but to me, it was all Dave Herman. To me, it was Herman, Herman, Herman. Like, because like, uh, at that point, there was this thing called Sansom Village. Like, I was like pre-South Street. That's, that's where we all met. It was really cool, like two blocks of madness. And uh, Herman would always talk about Ronald Philip Limited, where you buy your boots, you know. You get or you get like Dylan boots or, you, you know, you go, wow, I can't get these boots at Tommy Can, but I can get them at Ronald Philip Limited. Yeah, Rittenhouse Square was sort of like the counterculture area totally. there, right? Yeah. You, got, you had Ira Einhorn. He was there all the time, you know. Uh, but you had coffee shops. I mean, it was to me, it was enormously big deal to go down the Rittenhouse Square and have my always have my guitar. And just, you had like-minded people. You had the, you know, people talk about diversity now, but it was like, that was the beginning of people like, like really get like from all different parts of the city. And like, man, you're like, you're really happy. You know, you're like, you're glad this is happening. People from all walks of life are like sitting there listening to me play or someone else play. And, um, and I'm hanging out with characters I would never meet or be able to talk to, you know, or, you know, I wasn't drinking in those days or anything, but I was pretty much sober. Maybe I smoked a joint or something, but, to me, it was all about, you know, the pureness of thought. And then, it, nobody may not even know this, but that transferred eventually. It stayed at Rittenhouse Square. Then there were Friday night meetings at the Art Museum up at the top of the steps. It was the same characters would go up there. We were up there. And then uh, it was everybody was talking about saving. We, all we talked about was, like, doing the right thing. Then <laughs> then, then was people got in there, and then it was, like, warring factions. Then the last was time I was... Like the, kind of the Iron Einhorn, Iron Einhorn in the beginning of the Earth Day movement? It was, like, yeah, it was like those gangs. Like, I didn't know him. I used to see him. But he was always, like, uh, the mother bee in a beehive of people around him. 
But uh, I was really like a nobody, but I was aware of this Ira Einhorn guy. And so, but, but people, they were, everybody was talking about like doing the right thing. It was, on, it was like, you know, it was just, you know, it was, it was, as much as Kim Kardashian is on the minds of a, a lot of younger folks, we had a different thing on our mind, but it was just as many, you know, it was like. What, you year, know, what year is this? That would have been um, 19, 1970. 1971 and a little bit of 72 but that 18 months there was you know that was a big deal to go you know it was a flyer freak flag you know like sounds really cliche but like we were all flying our freak flags you know? and i used to bring my guitar down and i used to be lucky enough i would get a big crowd then the police would disperse it you know like they were like because it was potential problems <laughs> you know and um so yeah, it was a big deal. And then I met guys like Peter Stone Brown there. I met guys that did, you know, Talls, the art supply. Sure, yeah. uh, those two guys, uh, they were there all the time. And um, a lot of guys that ended up becoming really talented, sound men, you know, uh, that uh, me, people may not know them. But, I, I mean, there was really a talented bunch of people coming down. Yeah. Then I met some – I was really into Quakerism at the time. So I met some Quakers. I ended up going to Europe with these Quakers and – it was really great. It opened a lot of doors for me. I, I tend to think of that time as being a very optimistic time. And I totally. think of all the Philadelphia International records, uh, uh, Wake Up Everybody and, and things like that, I, there, there was a sense that, that there was a real uh, movement in, in social progress in that oh, time. Like race relations. I mean, it was incredible. I'm telling you, it was like, if you were there, Nat, right there, most of the folks down there were like, you know, you, you were talking about the latest record, discussing what they meant by that. I mean, it seems foreign or totally alien to people now under thirty. But, but we were, we were all like kind of on a movement thing, you know. And uh, you, there was an amazing amount of hope. It was like an aroma in the air, is what I call it, you know. Even though Ira Hunter turned out to be a knucklehead, but I mean, out of everything that that would be one word for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody told me he's not doing too well. I'll tell you a funny story. I was working in a bar, the Palladium at. Um, at uh, Penn there and then all of a sudden this guy comes in and I, I know him but I don't know really know him but the dude is like the doppelganger for Ironhorn right so he's like <laughs> one of my first customers and I go and I find it you know he was coming in a while you know so uh, he's like uh, he's like all sweating he goes and he's like oh man he goes give me a Hofbrau right the Hofbrau beer right so I go okay yeah so I go what's wrong man he goes the security they just did it again. I go, what they do? He goes, they just like, like put me in a wagon and interrogate him. I go, why? He goes, because they say I look like Ira Hunter. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, the motherfucker does look like Ira Hunter. You know? You know? So, <laughs> so I'm like, to me, I'm like, this sounds pretty funny, you know? And so then he goes, he goes from Hofbrau, then a Heineken, then a Bex, then a Budweiser, then a fucking like, um, you know, high, like a a goodness Dennis Sam's like the guy never would order the same drink so every time he's like coming over he's like coming off like being like pulled in and questioned you know so at like, this point it's becoming entertainment to me you know so like so like but anyway that, that's sort of like my little uh, joke on Ira Einhorn because this poor guy he did look like Ira Einhorn but he was you know he was getting questioned all the time but then he stopped coming in because I think he thought I was you know, getting a kick out of it or something, <laughs> you know. But the motherfucker was drinking six, eight beers. Never would he have the same beer in a time, you know. Then he would leave, you know, and like stagger and probably be interrogated again, you know. So, yeah. So, but then we all know Ira Iron turned out to be a, a 
a bad dude, you know? Yeah, yeah. The unicorn killer, I think they call yeah, him. Yeah, there's a movie, like like <laughs> Lifetime movies or something. You look up Ira Einhorn. Yeah, um, women, the Women in Trouble channel uh, yeah, has his number. Yeah, Ira, yeah like, I love I love that channel because like people start off really... I always like, there's like this like fermenting madness going on then next thing you know it's like a lamp going through the window in like a nice suburban neighborhood yeah it's always like a nice kind of mainline sort of setting like he seems so perfect at first like when i really get burned out i'll, I'll watch it like it's like feeding me librium like visually you know i had no idea why i had that collection of little boys shoes in the backyard uh, oh yeah it's all that all that shit you know um so yeah lifetime or whatever but i think i think there is an ira einhorn there should be an ira einhorn channel John should be <laughs> Hofbrau John. Yeah, he should be. Um, and I haven't seen him in a long time, um, but uh, but yeah. So all that shit was going. On. Even though like the, the the Ira was nuts, but like like it was like sparks coming off the spokes of a wheel. Like he was saying good things to yeah. those who were listening, and some of those people went off and did good things. I'm sure. Like you know, it's. What do you think happened to all that energy in this country? That's a good. I mean, it's still there, but it's been, it's minuscule now. Uh, I mean, like, when did I first notice a change? And, you know, it was there with me. I think I probably held on longer than most people. Um, I think it started to leave around, even before, who was there before Reagan? Was it? Uh, Carter. Carter, because you had to get people anti-nukes. That was, that was the, when that was over, the anti-nukes, and then. They really successfully ended the nuclear, you know, the building of nuclear plants in the United they States. They did, that but that was the last big movement that I remember. Yeah. Uh, and then, like. I think Reagan came in, and then things were still progressing. But then, um, I don't know what I don't know if people just got tired of it or whatever. But you know, I don't know because even Abby Hoffman was still active at the end. You know, yeah, right? and, yeah. but Jerry Rubin had already done Wall Street, gotten into Wall Street. But it ended. I'd say it ended around the Reagan era, and I don't know why. Whether it was a mutual thing that people just got tired of like protesting or whatever. And um, there was a real philosophy. I think that's one thing that, that people can't quite put their fingers on it, and people think, oh, that's just the way things naturally are. But I think there was a real political philosophy that got sold during the Reagan era. Yeah. And I started to hear phrases and sort of you know, common terminology taken as like, you know, truths, you know, things like, you know, your only. Uh, your only uh, responsibility is to your your uh, you know, your stockholders. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Your yeah, only yeah. responsibility is to your stockholders. Like that became something like, of course, you know, that's that's got to be a or greed upon. is good became like an accepted thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, and like I can remember, you know, working at the bar. You know, I was working at the bar. I was always talking to young folks, and, and they're like, like, you know, they they their heads was in the right place, but they're like going like, they knew that their parents were part of the protest movement, like back in. 69, 70, whatever, you know. And they go like, but after a while, their parents told them like, you know what? We feel that we wasted two years of our lives. Go for the juggler vein. Go to the business school and then just go. Like, get into Because they didn't want their kids to lose like that 20, because all, everybody was co-opted ultimately. They all became, I mean, it's what you do is amazing. I mean, like, like, you know, I'm not here to compliment, but I'm just like, you still are searching to do the right thing. But at the same time, you do make a sacrifice that, you know, these folks want to live, like, in a mansion or whatever. So, so that's – or live in whatever they want to live in. I mean, I'm still living like I did, like, like night – like, I'm still living, like, uh, basically, like, in an anarchist setting. And, like, it's – I mean, it, it, I always live humbly, you know. I mean, that's the only way I've been able to continue to do what I do. I don't have, like – I don't even have a TV. 
but I don't, you know, but I enjoy TV if I'm, I get an opportunity to watch it, like, you know, but uh, I have to go to the bar to watch TV, <laughs> or I sit under a lot of TVs when I'm playing guitar. I mean, I get a chance to I always think TV is what you, do, what you watch when you're in a pizza parlor. I, I do, yeah. I, I watch, I watch like I'll watch a game or like, a, you know, you get it, you can only watch snippets. You can't really hear what's going on, but. The thing is, I'm just saying, like, I just, in order to do what I do. I mean, the weird thing is, like, I never got the memo. Like, like in other words, like, like one of the, like, this whole, like, Queter with the record deal and all this. And then what happened that there was, I continued to try to write meaningful songs while a lot of my contemporaries locally were just going for, what do you call it, the hit. <laughs> and I, I was like, I mean, I mean, like, that's cool, you know, but like, but it was like, I, was, like, I couldn't, I didn't get the memo. It's like in, uh, um, it's like when Miley Cyrus sings that song party in the usa she's coming like if you re if you research the song which i'm sure none of your uh, listeners have but i'm gonna i'm gonna give it to you guys right because i'm learning that song right now on folk guitar i'm gonna do like a woody guthrie version of party in the usa which is one of the, one of the biggest hits ever uh she's discussing how she's coming in from nashville and she's going to hollywood you know and um she's she's a little down home for hollywood from what i understand yeah yeah so she comes in and and she's saying she's still dressed like I think she has like sneakers on, you know, her rocking kick, she says, the quote unquote, <laughs> in the song called Rocking in the USA by Miley Cyrus. So she's she's talking about how everybody there is beautiful and they're wearing stilettos. But she says, I guess I didn't get the memo. That's sort of a, that's, that's not a masculine rhyme. It's a feminine rhyme on stiletto because it's not a 100 percent rhyme in case you are taking notes. So. That's a pretty strong uh, statement within that song. So, like, I didn't get the memo. Like, the stilettos to me were like are like writing pop songs, where I was writing meaningful songs in broken sneakers. <laughs> so I can I can tie myself into Miley anytime. Yeah, just like Miley Cyrus. <laughs> yeah, Ken Queter didn't get the memo. Because <laughs> she, she's sticking up for like hard ethics. Yeah, you know, I felt more comfortable with the mics closer to me. Believe it or not, I really I felt slightly distant, like you know, during the most you know. Actually, let me tell you something. Two things in my life that don't scare me. Cameras and mics. I swear to God, I love both of them. Make me feel larger. Right, let's start. Okay. Nothing yet. It's like... Are we rolling? I just got out of prison. My middle teeth are missing. I'm heading towards the lost and found I'm looking for my sister She used to be a mister Like in Mr. Mrs. Israel Pound Don't ask me any questions Cause I haven't any answers I'm just sort of hanging around I've been eating off the table The house of the seven gables This cable's coming out of my ground Up and down the seashore Somebody said they saw it was not I did I used to be a trash man Now I'm living out of a trash can Pulling meat off of a bone Eating at McDonald's Eating at Hardee's It's horrible living alone
So let's talk about the film. Uh, you've uh, since I've been here last, you've uh, had a very successful uh, series of screenings with the the Ken Queter film. Yeah, it did. It came out and uh, almost sold out the uh, what do you call it, the International House, two shows, which was pretty amazing. And then it showed you know, down in Florida. Uh, there was a it got a great write up down there. Uh, and then it showed, and I think like five different festivals, and it's done pretty well, attendance wise, and you know stories you know did you sit in there with the crowd and, and, and I, you know what i was i was going to stay outside the building because i thought it'd be like too much what i did is like i for whatever reason i did what i got there early so i wanted to thank people i got there very early before it started and thanked people for coming out because i thought that would rather than to be like the real diva you know so um but <laughs> you i didn't really say you had something better to do that day <laughs> no i mean I, what i did no i just was like thinking like i couldn't sit in with the crowd because people would probably watch me watch it yeah, which yeah. would have made me up tight so i ended up watching it like from the side where people really didn't see me 
and I watched that. And then I, I pretty much watched it when it came around second time in the evening and watched that. What was it like to see your face movie screen size? Well, it was pretty cool. I mean, like to me, um, I mean, you know, I grew up Irish Catholic. You know, it's like you have this sense of it's sinful to to like take any pleasure and vanity. You know, like you know, it's like. But at the same time, I'm like older. I'm like, well, I'm glad these John Hottemeyer and and and, and Rob, uh, they did the. Um, they did. They did a tremendous job. So uh, it was exciting, you know. But I was, I was really happy to hear people laugh at the right time. When people were laughing at parts of the, like, there were some pretty funny things that went on in the movie, <laughs> and people really laughed. And and you know, at some of the parts that were really kind of crazy. So to me, it was, it was great. I mean, it was, you know, it was great. I wasn't. I'm not the kind of guy like, like I, re- I don't listen to Ken Quinn. I'm, I'm not there because I'm like. A big fan of Ken Queter, though I will say that in interviews because it strikes people as really megalomaniacal, <laughs> catches their attention. But, but to, I was I'm not the guy guy would watch my movie like like what's that uh, Sunset Drive or yeah you're not just, a, <laughs> like what's her name or, you know. uh, uh, yeah Gloria Swanson uh, yeah yeah yeah. She's, yeah I'm not doing that routine just yet that might come up later on um, you'll be as the sun's coming up Ken's sitting through the third screening of the film or yeah yeah uh, what, what did she say she goes uh, oh he said you used to be a big star she said I'm still a big star it's the pictures that got small yeah it's great. I, that's, I watched that a couple of times that, that woman is my mother but that is the Mrs. Queter that is my mother was so much like that like come here like, like this this voice so I grew up with you know so uh um my mother was Gloria Swanson, you know, something like that. So that's a great movie. And then she goes, I'm ready for my close-up at the end. So <laughs> I should have done that at the Creator movie. I'm ready for my close-up. I watched it with my, my 86-year-old mother in the theater uh, like a year ago or so. And it, when the, the lights came up, she's like, I can't believe that's over already. That was so good. Oh, she, you, for real? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. But yeah, it was great to sit in the movie theater and see it. It's, it's a stunning, still a stunning work, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, because... Um, I mean, the, the movie was, like, don't even get me, I mean, it's just a great movie. <laughs> when he arrives at the house and they're, and they're having the funeral for the monkey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's narrating the whole time. He's like, I knew there was something weird. And how about all of a sudden she's dating him? He gets him to dress up in the tuxedo. That stuff is great. Uh, just great acting, too. Yeah, and great, yeah. great dialogue. I think of her as such a sort of elder statesman, sort of in, since seeing that film sort of as a kid. But, you know, reading, I think she was only like 54 or something at the time she made the film. She really wasn't that old. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the time had passed, you know. All those the actors and actors. Well, we still have great actors. You still, you know, but that stuff is, that's the first thing I was exposed to. I was like, it's like the template, you know, Humphrey Bogart, you know, those guys, yeah. you know. Yeah, but I was just doing research about uh, Henry Fonda. For this class I'm teaching, and yeah. uh, he, uh, I didn't realize he tells a story that uh, his father took him to a lynching when he was a really, son, and it infuriated him and, and really I can't uh, imagine energized him politically for the rest of his life. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I just uh, things that went, you know, that went on like, and were, you know, I mean that shit goes on. A friend of mine, he was he was mixing sound for me years ago, and he went down. I think it was. Um, he went to another continent. I don't know where he was. But on Sundays, they would execute people, and they'd do it on the beaches. And they would sell popcorn. It was like this event. And that was like in this late 70s. Yeah. And he's going like, this is so, he goes, Ken, you wouldn't, this is horrible, you know. So, yeah, you just don't, I mean, you just don't think about it. But Jesus Christ. Not, not to conflate the two too much, but uh, it's amazing uh, 
you know, just 20 years ago or so, mixed martial arts were thought of as being like too violent to be on regular television or anything. And uh, even that sort of ultimate fighting contest, those grueling, you know, anything goes fights have become more mainstream in recent I know, years. I know. Yeah. Like boxing is like old hat, you know, sort of like, because <laughs> it does really, they, the, the mixed martial stuff does does really well. That guy just died. Uh, he was in one of those kind of extreme fighting, Kimbo Slice. Did you know oh, Kimbo? yeah, yeah. He just died two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I was a fan of his, and just because I like this, the backyard stuff he was doing. Did you ever see that? No, I haven't. Oh, Kimbo Slice in the backyard, <laughs> 2007, 2008. Well, you were a big boxing fan yeah, for was, years. Yeah. Do you I, still follow the, a the little fights bit? Yeah, at all? I, I saw Foreman do his last fight in Atlantic City. Wow, what year was that? Um, I went with Aldo Jones. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Well, Aldo was late still, 90s, maybe. It was probably like 1999. It was the final fight, uh, maybe 2000. That. Uh, Foreman fought, and he did win the. I mean, I was there. I, he did win the fight, but they. I think they were just tired of him. He'd been around a little while, so they gave the fight to the young guy, and then he he retired. But yeah, I mean, I was big Ali. I wasn't everybody, you know, Sonny Liston and Mike Tyson, and you know, I know a lot about all these guys. A, a marvelous Marvin Hagler. Yeah, who I think was robbed at that fight when he fought Sugar Ray Leonard. Yeah, and then I ended up hanging out with Burt Sugar, who was the remember the guy with the hat and the cigar. He, yeah, he wrote for Ring Magazine. He was I the think. best. It was, it was nobody like him. I ended up going to this thing. It was like six of the ex heavyweights in Philadelphia. We we're going to meet up at thirty eighth, thirty seventh, and Market Street back in nineteen ninety. And I was bartending that day, and I was going, as soon as I left, I went over there because Joe Frazier was going to be there and George Foreman all these guys. And Burt Sugar's over there, right? And I'm like, oh, no. Because the guy was like, you, when you saw that guy, there was nobody like Burt Sugar. And he had that cigar, and he had that hat, and he had the vodka. I didn't know he drank vodka, and I'm a vodka guy. So I'm like, dude, man, you do vodka. He's out drinking all day. Like, and I was drinking with Burt Sugar, and the guy out drinking, he was like, he was, he was unbelievable. I mean, I had no idea this guy. But he was like, he was Burt I haven't Sugar. heard the story of too many guys who outdrank you. Well, Burt Sugar could drink, I'm telling you. And uh, I think you could still smoke because he had the scar going, you know. So, yeah. But he was like that that thing. I mean, like that image, you know. This yeah, Burt that old-time boxing, you know, smoky room kind of kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, because there was other guys who wrote, wrote about boxing, but he was the guy, you know. And, like, uh, he passed away, I guess, about eight years ago. And, like, you know, then I did my Burt Sugar YouTube thing. Let me watch him for a while, you know. Because Burt Sugar, he's like a psychiatrist to me. Like, you know, you go, you look at Burt Sugar, then the world's okay. Because, like, somehow you feel like it's like the words are coming out of Moses' mouth. It's Burt Sugar, you know. I mean, it, that's how I feel about Burt Sugar. Great. Yeah, so, yeah, I was into boxing. And, I remember watching know. Mike Tyson fights with you back in the day, I think, as well. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I remember, I don't know, did you come over to the cottage when we watched George Foreman fought... Uh, uh, it was like September of 1989, I think, or maybe 1990, over at the cottage. I know Jim Sutcliffe was there uh -huh. and a few other folks. It were seems like, like I might have been there, yeah. And, and Foreman was, you know, and my cousin Holly, I think, was there. So <laughs> the, the boxing match, it was like, that was a great boxing match. I mean, Foreman almost won that fight, you know. Yeah. yeah. But uh, he didn't. It's been interesting to see Mike Tyson still out there sort of carving out a career for himself at this day. He was like the ultimate, like, you know, Boxer. I mean, he wasn't much a boxer. He was like a pu pugilist. How do you say it? Pug pug yeah, yeah. You know, fighter. And I mean, to me, it was like when he came out, man, it was like the thing that drove me nuts is like, how was he so good for three years? And then he went down the tubes. And, you know, but he was, people always remember, they're like, maybe he's going to cut. It's almost, what, Dylan's going to put out another Highway 61 fight. <laughs> Not for a while. Uh, and it really seemed to, it fits that narrative of, of he just seems so unstoppable. Like, you know, I. I <sighs> 
I'd never seen anybody dominate a division like that the yeah. way he did the heavyweight division. And yet, when it, when uh, Buster Douglas sort of you know showed the chink in his armor, it seemed like uh, you know he he just wasn't as scary anymore. But I guess it had you know, a, like, left his management it was at that Stamato. point when, as well. When yeah. Gustamato left, that was because he was no longer he was under what he wanted. Like he he, he partied that whole week with. Uh, Buster Douglas. Yeah. So when he went in, he, he looked pretty tough, but he didn't really do the stuff. And Douglas, Douglas's mother had just died, so he had like this thing to prove for his mom. There was a lot of stuff. So and then, then when once uh, Tyson married whatever her name was, Robin something. Yeah. And then the mother got involved. There was a lot of like psychological stuff going on. So. Had that horrible interview where they were just saying, you know, they're just pulling all of the, the dirty uh, laundry out on national TV, and he yeah. just sort of sits there nodding with a yeah. smile on his face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, so I mean, it was, I think it was a lot of psychological factors. It's just like when you're a golfer. I mean, like when that shit went down with uh, Tiger Woods, with the the thing, the bad stuff that was, you know, the whole oh, yeah. the whole bit. He's never recovered from that because somehow they they, they penetrated his mental zone. <laughs> I think he only won one big thing since then, you know. So, yeah, I mean, he was really a golden boy in a lot of ways. Forever. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know? And so, uh, so I mean, things happen. So, why? I mean, Muhammad Ali, he was pretty good. I mean, like, he was great. But I mean, there was a lot of fights they gave to him, but he didn't win. I mean, yeah, yeah. you could see that, but. I mean, but, so how would you have done if, it, if there was a Ken Queter sponsorship hanging over your head and you had to, you had to behave well enough to be sponsored? I try. I guess I would try. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, I remember once. Um, me and Aldo went down to uh, the Trocadero for some. I didn't even. I didn't even know what sponsorship was. It was like nineteen. It was like you know. I was like thirty-six years old or whatever. I was like. I remember we were going to be sponsored by somebody. It was like Corona or it was. It could have been like Martin Guitars. I don't know what it was. But it was like we were all being judged by people that from another world. And we were like good little monkeys, you know, like trying to win the, the, the you know, the contest. I didn't win. But then I was kind of glad. I Like somebody else won that I knew and I'm, they won. And, Did you have to carry a banner around at all your Yeah, you had to something? do all this stuff. And then you're, you know, you're kind of a shill, you know, that kind of a thing. And you can't play games. I mean, you got to do that. You, you know, they find out. They send spies out. You know, then you're then you're screwed. So I never I never did get any sponsorship from anybody. <laughs> I mean, and I never really looked for it, but I did get involved a little bit with things because without it, was like, well, let's do it. Let's see what happens. You know. Yeah. So, but we didn't win. Somebody, somebody did some blues band one. You know. So, but I used to, I remember keeping an eye on those guys going, the, the, you know. You know, it only lasted a couple of years, and then they were off. You know, but I, I know can, a lot of guys. I can imagine you reporting them to, back to the to the, the corporation. I went out to see their show. They weren't they weren't holding the banner up. They took it down at the they second d- set. They do it. You know, you'd be surprised, man. I remember I did the one time I did a gig at the casinos for a couple of weeks because I uh, really? the money sucked, but I was like, going, I got to do the casinos. I just it's too evil. I just have to get. I think I was at the Golden Nugget. So, and I was doing, you know, you had, they had this thing, you got to check, this thing was called a gate or whatever. So, before I'm on, before Queter comes on, they had this unbelievably sophisticated uh, uh, sound system, right? So, Queter, I'm not on yet, but I'm checking the control. They got a sound man. This is ridiculous. So, while I'm setting up, you hear, like, all the really loud, popular music of the time, which not really something I'm into, but it's pretty loud, right? So... <laughs> By the time I plug in and then I get a chance to sing, they have a thing on the microphone. That as soon as like 
They don't even turn off by a button. You turn off by going, I've been rocking around and apparently whatever I'm doing, you know, singing like a wrong, whatever, whoever I'm singing, she, like uh, Cheeseburger in Paradise, which I actually knew at the time. Uh, and then, because everybody, oh, he's doing Cheeseburger in Paradise. It's time to relax, you know. Anything that was inane and meaningless, right? So, but then I noticed after a while, I'm like going, is that guy watching me over there? Guys with like, like Secret Service dudes watching me, right? Like watching, they didn't know who I was. And like, Whoever it was, I did my thing. And then, like, every time I would go there, you know, I was there once a week, they, they'd send these spies out. So then I start forgetting songs that I knew because I was being watched, you know. But then if you stop, when your song ends, say you're doing Friend of the Devil or whatever, and it ends for more than three seconds, all of a sudden that music, it's like this gate that knew their information stopped coming out of your mouth or your guitar. Like, as soon as it was, like, dreaded, terrifying concept of silence where it might be some <laughs> contemplation might be able to take place at a casino all of a sudden the technology would take over and blast like a britney spears song like ear shattering volume and then as soon as i start singing like uh, la 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 the network turn off because i was that earth shattering loud ear piercing like but god forbid there would be more than 3.5 seconds of silence because it, where somebody might reflect on your performance and it could be reflected it had to be constant like noise detritus going in like loud detritus going in your ears so that they would keep you at the one arm machines you know and the bizarre thing is is that like you know nobody could be thinking is this place closing now yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, they didn't want one person to leave you know so uh, but after a couple weeks that I got the money was so bad it was really bad but I, but I, I did it because I have to say that I did that experience, you know. And then I didn't know, it was the last week I was there. I'm not a gambler at all, really. But I was I had to kill time in between. So I was doing the one-armed bandit. But I didn't know. And I find out that when I got, the guys, because you weren't, I go, yeah, they go, you can't gamble when you're working here, you know. And I was like, they never caught me doing that. But, like, but I had no idea because I was bored. I was like gambling nickels and shit, you know. But, uh but yeah, that gate, I think it's called a gate. It was something because Jim Fogarty said, Queter, that's a gate. I go, what the, what's that? He goes, you know, they don't want any silence here. Well, Jim continued. He hit sold his soul to Satan. He stayed there for like another six weeks. You know? Oh, wow. So, um, but, uh, but I did it. I did it. This goes way back. This goes further back than the bottom of the Empire State. Where the people are digging a hole in that ground.
th thinking of wild places you've played, uh, you actually played a, a prison once too. I did you? a couple. I did four prisons. Yeah, four prison gigs. Yeah, four, maybe five. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did uh, the federal penitentiaries, but I did do a state prison too. I did. Actually, I did more like six if you go back. But there was one year where I just kept doing prisons. I did prisons with uh, like Joe Ankerbrand came in, Ali Jones. Uh, I think George Manny did a prison with me. Uh, maybe Ed Roberts. A lot of the guys at the time that were hanging out south on the Dobbs, I was getting these prison gigs. And you can still do them for those out there listening. You can still do a prison gig. Uh, here's, here's, here's the deal, in case you want to know. Uh, I was going to do some state prisons. and But a lot of my friends were already locked up in federal prisons for like, you know, doing drug, you know, drug distribution and white collar crime. So I would be in touch with them on the phone and they're going like, they go, they go, uh, here, they, they would give me the phone or it's called the recreation department. So you find out like these guys are up in Otisville, like, uh, New York and they, they would give me the, the phone number or this is before computers of the, they go, call Joe. He's in the recreation department. He's waiting for your call, Queter. So I called Joe. He goes, hello, I got this Queter guy with the, I'm friend of so-and-so, Butchie. He's inside. He goes, ah, you know, but yeah, you know, it's like, like so uh, everybody knows each other. It was kind of like, not a country club, but it was not not as bad as you, the state prisons, because I did those too. So you go in, but when you play a federal penitentiary, they pay you like you're doing an Ivy League college. They pay you minimum $1,000 up to $1,500. Wow. You know, it's a long ride, whatever. Well, but yeah, I was the young. Casino. Yeah, it's like good money. It's like a casino of prisons. Yeah. So, so, so one day we we decided to do Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, and right across the street is the state. So we did a double, right? So we did. I think we did the state earlier in the morning. Boy, oh boy, rough characters in that joint, man. Uh, really rough dudes and like murderers, and they were really not into the, what I was doing. We got paid a hundred dollars to do the state prison, right? So then later on that night we go, we do the. the How do you know they weren't into what you were doing? Ooh, because they bring they march the guys out, and they're like kind of booing and like I'm doing like I don't know, I forget what I was doing. I was doing like songs by the Police or Grateful Dead. I don't know. I, my, I was doing my own songs, which are really ridiculous because nobody they want to hear dance music, you know. Uh, so so they kind of guys were getting up and leaving and turning their back on me. So then we went to the Fed Penitentiary. Um, and we did that. That was, and that went with this guy. We go inside, I was, and there's going, people that I didn't even know were up there, Newman. I go, Queeter's here, you know. Yo, I'm going, what are you doing here, man? I go, well, you know, doing like cooking the books. And, and like, I, I can't remember last time I saw you. We were drinking at Dewey's. I got it. He goes, I'm only in here for five years. Like, only in here for five years. You know? So then so then one time, this, this friend of my butch, he was always going from different, he was in there for a long time. So they was transferring from different different prisons, you know. So he goes, Queter, you got to do me a favor, man. He goes, these guys have been here for a long time. You got to bring, can you bring up like some girls like to sing? Like, you know, just like, like the guys haven't seen women in a while, right? So I go, I'll put it together, right? You know, so I put together some, um, you know, backup singers, females, you know, you know, pretty darn symmetrical looking, you know, and, um, and they, they, you know, we all came in, you know, and like, and like the guy who arranged it, Butchie. And then I brought in sun. I was bringing in like sunglasses. Like they're not allowed to have sunglasses in prison. But if you find a pair of sunglasses, they can't take them away from you. Well, I was a sunglass guy, right? So <laughs> and harmonic. I was bringing harmonicas. Yeah, you know, he's like so. Like the, the like you could um like if you had a harmonic in prison, it was a big like it was kind of a status symbol. And this guy Butchie was always really working me, you know. So I'm bringing in shit. So he was like like when we finally left, it was like. 
like he was the king of the hill, man, Butcher, you know, because like <laughs> harmonicas sun- and sunglasses. <laughs> and then I brought the thing was the two girls that came in. I mean, the men were going berserk, you know, and, and it was we were in there for like four hours, you know, walking around, you know, in the cafeteria and whatever. How and, did the women enjoy this trip? <laughs> well, they were one of them. I, I'm not, I'm not going to mention her name, but she, she worked for a pretty famous news agency. She wrote a story on it, and you can Google it. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I don't know if it's really, but I get into, but yeah, I get yeah, into no, trouble. I don't think there's any trouble. If it's yeah, I mean, it, it, was in, it ended up in Philadelphia Magazine, because yeah. she went in to see what it was like. And it, it's, the headlines, Queter Goes to Prison. It's like, perfect. And it's like, <laughs> she went in, like, you know, you're not allowed to take pictures, you know, but she wrote all about the experience, you know, what it was like, you know, among all these guys. And then the other girl was a rock and roller, so it didn't bother her. But, you know, they were dressed up and dressed to kill. Uh, you know, it was so butchy that you go, see, I, I arrange this. You know, he's like telling her, I arrange this. You know, so it was a real big deal. So, and uh, so every time he, he changed prisons, I was doing those prisons because it was always a $1,500 gig or a $1,000 gig. You know, it was kind of, but I think we did it like four or five and up. But the fifth time, I really, that's when computers started. They were like running checks on all the guys. And then we're like, you know, we got up. One time we went up, and I don't think one of the guys couldn't get in. And I was like, this is, we drove all the way up here. So that, that was, you know, you know, because it was a bit of a, every gig was four-hour drive or six or so, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I did it because of the Johnny Cash thing. I always wanted to do it, you know. I'm sort of surprised that, it, it, that more people don't do it. It seemed like it would be like a perfect idea for something like The Roots to do or something they alive could, in they, prison. They may have done it. I mean, like, like, in other words, when I did it, I didn't announce it to the newspapers but I, I wanted the money. I, was, I wanted to do it for Butch because we were South Street guys. And, uh, um, I mean, I did some things that were really nice on a human level. Like, I used to live in – when I lived in South Philly in uh, the late – like, 1990, the guy down below me had a coffee shop. He found that I was going to such and such a prison. He goes – because I was I, – I, he goes, what? I go – he goes, my cousin or my bro- – somebody from the neighborhood was in there. And he goes, you've got to do me a favor, man. So I went in. I, I don't know what what I did. I don't know if I brought something in or or I made a big deal like when we were rocking. I said, this next song goes to Tony so-and-so, you know, from his cousin so-and-so. And it was this enormous deal on a human level. Like, he didn't know me. But like, I'm bringing this guy's name up. I think I must have maybe... I might have brought him a card. I don't know. I, something was t- not illegal, but there was. It was the guy like was almost in tears, you know. So it was. There were some good things that came out of that, you know. Uh, my particular thing was I, every fucking prison I went into, and every time I was ever rocked up in my life, there's always somebody there who's like, "Quitters here, like motherfucker, man," you know. <laughs> you know, like, like if you're overnight, if you're stuck overnight, it's like somebody that I just saw six months ago down at the Italian market is in jail overnight with me. And he's in for something else, you know. So I had like a little bit of backup there in case some shit went down. You know, it's nice to know, you know, some tough characters in these fucking places, you know, fucking crazy. You brought your guitar. Do you think we can? Yeah, uh, I could do that. Yeah, get a song or two out of yeah. you. Yeah. Do you have any beer or anything? Or I was going to. Uh, let me see. Anything that- <laughs> I mean, the other night, right, I go on stage, and, uh, you know, all these girls just jump on stage with me, and they're going, sing something we can sing to. I'm like, you know, the old man, the old man in the sea, the old man in the folk folk guitar they got here. So, uh, little do they know, I mean, they, you know, see, Otto Jones taught me, I keep bringing Otto's name up, Yeah. like, Otto Jones used to do 
like Nancy Sinatra songs. I'm like, what are you doing, man? You guys, people like it. So years later, I was going, you know, maybe maybe I should do like an hour. I mean, I'll do like Britney Spears or whatever. So I started doing that stuff even before Richard Thompson did it, you know. And then over the years, I, I try to learn like one female pop artist song that year, whether it's Avril Lavigne or yeah. Kesha. Like, I got into Kesha. I really got into Kesha. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're, they're amazing. I mean, like, there's some there's songs. I mean, like, the thing is, you can say whatever you want, but man, they're produced well, and you know, they got hooks. And mm. <laughs> wow, okay, let's <laughs> see what can we do here. Uh, I like, I mean, I would like to do whether like a, like a Billy Shide song or something, or or I could do my own songs. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I've always liked Roger Miller, like, uh, like, uh, dang me, man. Nobody, you don't hear that, man. Like, like, that's like one of my friends, like, Well, here I'm getting high, getting ideas. Ain't nothing but a fool live like this. Out all night, running wild. Woman sitting at home with a month old child. I said, dang me, dang me. I ought to take a rope and hang me. I'm on the highest tree. I said, a woman, would you weep for me? One more time. We're sitting around a bar with the rest of the guys. Six rounds were bought, and I bought five. Spent the grocery and half the rent. $14.27. I said, dang me, dang me. They ought to take a rope and hang me. High from the highest tree. Woman, would you weep for me? Say roses are red and violets are purple. Sugar is sweet and so is maple syrple. I'm the seventh out of the seventh son. A poppy was a pistol on my son of a gun. I said, dang me, dang me. They ought to take a rope and hang me. High from the highest tree. I said, a woman, would you weep for me? Bip, 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 do, 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 do. Bip, 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 do, 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 do. Ba, 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 ba. Ba, ba, da, 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 Roger Miller. Great song, man. You know? But nobody plays that, you know? Uh, yeah, it's funny. My kid knows Roger Miller mainly because uh, the Robin Hood uh, cartoon he did oh, yeah. the music for. Yeah, is there songs in that? Uh, there, yeah, so he wrote all the songs for it. What are, I wonder what some of the songs are. Uh, Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest. Oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, he did just a beautiful job on those. I guess, I guess he did Big River as well. He did. On he won like seven, seven awards for that. Yeah, Big, Tonys. For, Tonys, for yeah, that. yeah. And it was like I read the whole story because I I got the uh, Roger Miller biography. There was a book came out. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, it talks about how that that came about, the, him writing the songs for the river. And uh, it talks about like he was already pretty much retired. He he had it with the music business. And this young guy, I was a fan of, just kept going, calling him, calling. I think him. a man is actually I know his brother, Rocco Landisman, was the producer of that. I think he was the one who pushed him in. That might it. yeah, it's just kept bothering Roger. And Roger procrastinated to the the end till he goes, okay, I'll do it. Then he didn't write anything. And then, like, he had, like, seven days to come up, like, 14 songs. He wrote them all. And it's and like it became, like, uh, really amazingly, uh, you know, 
Well, he got a lot of awards for this tune, so he yeah. kind of broke the record. He's sort of a songwriter, songwriter in a way, just the, the way he, there's a there's a mathematical clarity about those songs in a way or something. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they used to say, like, when he first came on the scene, he was hanging out down Tootsie's Orchid Lounge down there in Nashville. There were other songwriters that just hang around, just hear him say things. <laughs> he, he was, he was, his phrases just generally come out of his mouth. Yeah, I think Willie Nelson actually wrote some songs just based on things that Roger Miller said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, he some that book is hilarious. I, I I lent it to someone, never came back, but you can get it on the Roger Merrill website. But he, he, there's so many funny stories in it, like the, the shit that he did. Like he would like you go to his house, right? Like he was in a hotel. Like you go over, and uh, he knew you were at the door, so he go come on in, and he'd have his, his ear against the wall, right? <laughs> They're going, what's going on? He goes, he goes, listen, go put your ear against the wall. So the guy puts his ear against the wall, and he goes, "I don't hear anything." And Roger goes, "Yeah, I know. It's been like that all day." <laughs> <laughs> and, he would do, and, like, and somebody said, "Hey, Roger, uh, do you have any advice uh, getting into the music business?" Like a young kid, he goes, "Yeah, keep your change in one pocket and your pills in another." He goes, "I just took a quarter." <laughs> I mean, the guy was it was uh, it was great. Roger Miller, man, it's like great man, just just uh, just great. Yeah, I miss seeing him pop up on TV the way it used to when I was a, a kid, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I saw him, I met him at the end. I saw him at the, at the Valley Forge Music Fair. And I got oh, a chance really? to meet him. I, I brought back a CD, and he looked at it. He goes, Ah, I was just a kid then. He signed it. I still have it. I said, Roger, because I, I know a lot of his songs. I go, Meeting you is like meeting the Beatles in 1964. I mean, I mean it. And he was like, Ah, you're too kind, kid. Then he went in, and then I saw the show. It was, it was at the, where the, uh, the, 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 the thing would spin. Like you, oh, you in, in the, the round. round, yes. And he's like talking. He's going, what the hell kind of thing is this? He goes, one minute I'm singing, I'm singing directly to you, and a minute later I'm singing into your ear. He <laughs> 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 was, was just great. But I was going to go backstage, but that's when he started having vocal problems, which turned out to be cancer. Oh really? Because he really liked me, but he, but they, 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 he's really not, he, he was he was having some issues on stage, and then apparently it must have just started hitting him at that point. You know? I was thinking of vocals, listening to you sing. You you really still have quite a range it's for insane. somebody that sings every night and everything. I know. I try not to even think about it, you know, because <laughs> um, I it just I don't know. Because when I was young, I used to always think about it, and I would inevitably lose my voice. Yeah. And then. And then I started to stop thinking and stop thinking about it. But yeah, I've been really lucky because I'm doing, you know, this, it, it's going to be a slow, t like next week's going to be kind of slow, but I'm coming off like, well, you know, five nights a week for the last, what, 20 weeks or something. <laughs> so I'm really lucky, you know, that I have that. And I hope I can keep keep it, you know, because I don't know why, but I need it. You know, I do need it. Yeah, you know, you're, get, you're, you know, you're in good well, voice today. Yeah, yeah, definitely, you know. I'm trying to think of a... Like a song of mine that I never do, a man's got a gun. But I do you know that song. I do know that song, but yeah. I'd love to hear. It. Yeah, I could do that. I mean, so yeah, because I do a little bit of a different version. It's it's just a more acoustic sound. It's like. Got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He's got a gun, so give it to him. 
He's got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He's got a gun, so give it to him. Alright. Got a bum is on the beggar, my baby, baby, baby. There's a bum on the beggar, bum, baby, the bum. He's on the beggar, my baby, baby, baby. He's on the beggar, bum, bum, baby, the bum. A man's got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He's got a gun, so give it to him. He got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He got a gun, so give it to him. Alright. You got an extra nickel in your pocket. So cough it up for the last time. This man is messing with your future. So whatever you do, don't you waste his time. Oh. A man's got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He's got a gun, so give it to him. He's got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He's got a gun, so give it to him. All right. Oh, the bomber's on the beggar, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. There's a bum on the beggar, bum, 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 bum. He's on the beg and bobby, bobby, bobby. He's on the beg and bobby, bobby, bobby. Oh yeah. A man's got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He got a gun, so give it to him. He got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He got a gun, so give it to him. All right. He got an extra nickel in your pocket. So cough it up for the last time. This man is messing with your future. So whatever you do, don't you waste his time. He's got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He's got a gun, so give it to him. He's got a gun, don't move, don't move, don't move. He's got a gun, so give it to him. Hey! One thing that really sets you apart from a lot of artists I, kn I know, uh, musicians I know, is that you really haven't... Uh, you haven't really bared down on one arrangement on your catalog of songs. Every time I hear uh, your your catalog, it sounds different. It, it, it's similar, you know, but it sounds different. Yeah. Oh, it's. Not, yeah, I mean, I guess Dylan is known but for sometimes. Like, he, you know. he pulls things out like rubber bands. <laughs> but I mean, that that gets to the point. Like, I have no idea what he's playing until yeah, he starts do it to that sing. Way, yeah. yeah, but I mean, you you really do. Uh, each performance really is unique. And, it's a little uh, bit different. I know. I, yeah. I, I, I don't. I well, sometimes we work with different guys. They'll they'll add something a little bit. But you know, you want to stay on the what do you call it? The um, the spinal cord of the so you keep you don't Dylan throws the spinal cord out with the baby wash you know <laughs> I hold on to the spinal cord and then the guys that I play with or myself I'll go you know what I was playing that wrong before you know there's a hip where the leg is you know so then uh, I just I keep it fairly faithful but but that version I like better than the one that I recorded because I it just it, 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 somehow it just came to me it took a long time to come to me that the correct way to do it was that way you know oh, that's great so which is cool you know it's pretty cool i guess that's another another uh, benefit that you've had of, of playing with so many different musicians it's not like you've played with the same crew of five guys and you you have a muscle memory of how the song is played yeah i mean like you know like um 
I've been playing with so many guys. I've been really, really lucky, and I can, I'm extremely grateful to almost all the players that ever played with Could me. Could you imagine what the Ken Queter, Pete Frame you know, family tree would look like? I thought about that once, about doing that, because um, there's a lot of names on there. Uh, and, uh, and if you add the people that, not just the people who played with me on stage, the people who recorded with me, it gets really enormous. You probably played with as many people as Art Blakey. Maybe Blakey was, you know, how old was he when he died? That dude. He was in his seventies, but yeah, I mean, he he had so much talent that came yeah. to that band over the years. He used to years. play the um, Bijou. Oh the, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Back in the day, Larry Maggot always wanted to bring. He always loved. Larry was always a big supporter of jazz, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like I've been lucky. So you know, I mean, I've been playing. You know, I mean, guys, everybody from Greg Davis, Wally Smith, and those guys, and then um, I ended up with, working with Ben Vaughn, and I got. You know, I was a super electric guy back in the old days, and I got more reintroduced my acoustic roots after Ben. And lately, I've been playing a lot with you know Jim Fogarty, who's like he's he can, he can do anything, but he really does have he does have a love of acoustic based stuff. Jim's been a tremendous um, partner with me when we do rehearsals. Like so a lot of times, we'll put together different bands, and Jim kind of he'll select. He goes, Ken, you're going to want to get this guy and get that guy. So then we'll use these guys, and we get this great. We did a David Bowie tribute at the World Cafe Live uh, in. John, do you know who Johnny Good Times is? A Quizzo guy. Oh yeah, yeah, great guy. Uh, he had a big. It was like the Johnny Good Times super bowl of Quizzo. So he, since Bowie had just died, Johnny goes, "Can you learn these?" You know, and we did like a Bowie set. And then what, we did, what Bowie songs did you do? We did uh, everything, everything from like Heroes to uh, the obvious ones, the Ziggy, Rebel, uh, Rebel, Rebel, Rebel. Uh, a whole bunch. We did a whole bunch of them, but it, there wasn't too many because you want to freak the audience out. Then we had to do <laughs> ten songs from. 10 songs from the 80s or something that they weren't big hits but we had to learn those songs <laughs> man like you, these weren't even on your radar screen right so I to, to, like I had to learn songs by wham you know I have a whole list of people I had to, and we had to do like um, 15 seconds of each song oh really wow that was a hard homo song but you know Jim and I you know we had EJ on on uh, keyboards do you know EJ yeah. he's, he's he was in the the um, the Goats. Remember the oh, Goats? sure. Yeah, Prior true. to the Roots. Toured the world. EJ lives in Philly. Just a genius musician. We had him on keyboards. We had Jim Fogarty, Mike Vogelman, and then we had Roger Cox. He had this killer band that Jim assembled. So then we did, of course, some Queter stuff. But I mean, but, but when, you, when you work within that context of these guys, that Jim's kind of sort of like band leader that, uh, it's pretty amazing. It's like, uh, you know, because Jim, like I like things slide a little bit because I'm a little too nice. Jim's like, <laughs> Uh-uh, it's fucking F-sharp, doesn't belong against the G. And I need that. <laughs> it's like a drill sergeant. Half the time he's criticizing me. <laughs> Motherfucker, write the songs. Uh, but, uh, but, 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 but Jim's good. He's like, he's like a great musician, plus he doesn't let shit slide. Uh, we're, this is getting off a uh, peripheral topic here. But uh, one thing I was curious to talk to you about, just uh, t- a couple shows back, we had uh, the painter uh, Skirmantis Pipas on from uh, Lithuania. Uh, originally, he talked about being a Lithuanian immigrant uh, coming to the United States, and uh, I remembered your 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 parents were Lithuanian, right? Yeah, my my father's side was hundred percent Lithuanian. My mother's uh, Irish side. Yeah, and this was I mean, there, wasn't there like a Lithuanian uh, what like a community uh, center kind of thing that was around when you were? Uh... Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, the um, right there at um, like Third and Wharton, there's like Saint Casimir's. There's, there's a whole. There was a Lithuanian community there, back way back in the day. Yeah, I was and wondering if you did. Have you had much touch with that as when you were younger? Much memory of that at all? Not really, because um, 
I mean, I lived up in Port Richmond. There's a Lithuanian church up there. I forget the name of it. But I was like sort of like, when I was younger, I was really a rebel about, I was disavowing my Irish heritage and my Lithuanian. And nothing, like I was just, that, it was like, it was some kind of a thing that I thought I'm living in the present tense. I don't want to know. Everybody's this, we're made out of atoms and molecules. There's no Lithuanian. And like, we're all the same. So it wasn't until really not that far, you know, I mean, I knew Alan Jones was Lithuanian. I always, I would welcome anybody who's Lithuanian. Of course, uh, I wasn't declaring, but I, I was thinking <laughs> it was that for me to get really involved with that was going to be narrow-minded, you know. But as I've gotten older, I'm glad, you know, there's, I know where my parents lived on 2nd Street. Like, I play these gigs at the Shamrock at 2nd and Reed. There's been a saloon there for 100 years. Yeah. My parents, my, there was a Queter's Bakery across the street from this place, right? Oh, really? Now, it wasn't called the Shamrock back then. It was Queter's Bakery and then whatever saloon. So I'm like, God knows why, but I've been playing there for a number of years on and off. They call me in. I'm like going... The ghosts of Queter are here. Like my grand, believe me, my grandfather drank, right? And then my father dr must have drank there, and now I'm drinking there without any type of like conscientious effort. Here I am playing in the same exact spot that other generations uh, were there, you know. So, so yeah. So I, I, I'm, I love my. At this point, I'm older. I love the Lithuanian side and the Irish yeah. side. You Did know? your father talk about it at all? Or no. The, 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 this may sound uh, a bit. Uh, no, what do you want to call it? But like Lithuanians, or it sounds like a generalism, any Lithuanian in my family and in other families that I talk to, because I go, nobody tells you nothing. <laughs> nothing. And one time I met my uh, my second, like he's sort of like my second or third cousin. He's like 70 years old, about 10 years ago I met him. He's still alive. And I go, you know, because I was asking my cousin, my other second cousin, she knows nothing about Lithuania. She's younger than me. Nobody of us. And I go, so I said, I said, didn't your dad? He goes, no. And then I, I said, why? I talked to him. I go, why did you not tell your daughter anything about Lithuania? He's going, kids don't need to know that stuff. It was like, and it was across the board. And to this day, in my, anybody in my family that's still alive that was, that's 100% Lithuanian, nothing, like nothing is surrendered. It's unbelievable. It's, and it's, I don't know if he's, oh, I know. I know nothing. <laughs> like if I get captured, I know nothing. You know, I don't know why they left. I don't know why they're here. You know, I know there's a bakery. That's all I know. And I'm Lithuanian. You know, <laughs> you know. And I'm Irish too. But the Irish, you kind of sort of the most malleable of the of the melting pot in the yeah, United yeah, States like, were the Lithuanians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, but it's really, I mean, like, because I'm I always and I see somebody's name that ends in an I S or an A S. I'm like, hey, you're probably Lithuanian. And I you go, yeah. And I go, I'm Lithuanian. Then they're like, then. You know, it's like a nice hug, and it's beautiful, you know. But I mean, like, there's always that. You know, like, people, like, sometimes I wonder, why don't I drink so much? You know, I'm, like, thinking in the back, like, in the universe, there's background noise, right? In the background noise of my subconscious, Lithuania, <laughs> Irish, both, meeting up with the Queter man. So, like, sometimes I'll be bored, and I'm like, I feel like I need a drink. I'm like, that's, it's probably, like, my ancestors are trying to get in, in touch with me. Because, you know, the subconscious remembers hundreds of years you know it's genetic right so it's probably it's probably a little hand grabbing something like a <laughs> nano a nano hand uh, thinking about getting a drink so but i mean you know i'm just saying you know i'm proud of both uh both both of those uh, you know what do, we, what do you call ancestries you know because they're both you know the, the irish sure the poetic thing coming out of that lithuanians got more of a, a chilly frosty 
like abstract analysis of things. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my opinion. But I mean, like I can say what I want because I'm Lithuanian Irish. Right? <laughs> so it's pretty good. But nobody knows. We used to always say, "Why did you? Why did you leave Lithuania?" Huh? Nothing. Like, <laughs> was there a crime? You know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, no, that's it. <laughs> that's great. Um, can we get one more song out of you? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Out here. Uh, a Billy Shard song or my song? Yeah, man. I'll do one of my songs with that. You know, I love, love Billy, but you know, <laughs> I do one of these. I do the song called Places, which is about my life. I mean, it's about, you know, what this whole in and out of bars all the time. I'm always in a different place, you know, like. Everybody's in a different place. They were in a place once, and they're in another place now, you know, so it's called Places. Hopefully I remember, there's a lot of lyrics in I've been all around the world in places, but there ain't no place like a place called Places That I Know. Places is the place I go when I know I have to show my face in places. There's lots of noise and lots of smoke. Everyone enjoys a joke in places. Faces missing on the clock It's almost as if time has stopped in places Sometimes there's a sing-along Sometimes it goes on too long in places But it don't matter what this song Cause the jukebox broke But it's always on in places Broken hearts are playing cards Outside in the parking lot of places Underneath the purple moon Spoon man playing with his spoons on cases I don't know why, but I feel safe here The big old world behind that door I don't know why I was placed here It's really not my place to ask what for Well, the barman, he's a friend of mine He comes on at half past nine in places He don't care about last call just when you leave Please don't fall down here in places now the waitress, she's my former flame I just can't seem to place her name in places She's so enticing, slicing lime It's the minor details my mind erases Lucky Strike is always there But now all he does is sit and stare in spaces Once he had a real good job Working for his ma and pa down at Reese's Suddenly he disappeared Turned up not too far from here in pieces But I put him back together again Now he's sitting on a bar stool In a place called Places I got my golf clubs in that kitchen But they're not there for a shooting par I take them out on occasion Just in case there's a problem in the bar But I feel safe here The big old world behind that door I don't know why I was placed here It's really not my place to ask what for 
Well, the flag is always waving high on the place on the wall that it occupies in places. It's the home of the brave and the home of the free with a shiny light bulb on the top of a tree in places. And so I have another beer and I wonder what am I doing here in places. And I think of what might have been if I hadn't spent my entire life in places. sort of an biography a little bit there yeah I like that song that's a great song I stole that line and wanted or it was it was a the thing about the golf clubs in the kitchen uh, Billy Shy wrote a song called I keep a a nine iron in the back of a car he's driving around in case there's a problem on the way to the bar <laughs> I just put it in case there's a problem in the bar because you know? <laughs> that's a good line you know that's a good line that's cool Oh, I've kept you here for a couple of hours. I'm here. cool, I'm cool, yeah. <laughs> I'm cool. You said her? I said, no, it's the bomber. Tom the bomb. Tom the bomb? Is he still uh, oh, he's, around? He's golfing yesterday. What the, uh, he's like... Um, is he still lawyering? Or what, what was he doing? Oh, he wasn't, he anything wasn't that's uh, not above board. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that song Diablo about him, you know? Yeah. He was so, forced to leave the country at one point or something? Yeah, he ended up in Mexico. I think he did some horse race fixing down there. Did, whatever he does, it's like if he goes to Geno's, I mean, if he goes to Burger King, like, take something's coming home with him. Like, that doesn't belong to him. <laughs> could be a salt shaker. Could be anything, you know. He's like, it's like a war of attrition between him and the universe at large, you know. It's a big place, the universe. At my age, it's like it's almost fifty percent of the guys I knew are gone. Like, like they're gone. Like we're, we might be eclipsing fifty percent, because I could just rattle off names of particularly a lot of guys from South Street. Some really just wonderfully talented guys who just kind of they never knew when to stop. That's the thing. Like it's like you know, or they had some really bad luck. But generally, it was pretty much uh, they didn't know when to stop. That's my thing. I always kind of. I never was the guy who didn't get the hangover for bad behavior. You know? So I might drink through the hangover a couple of days. Then I'm going to get the, the hangover of hangovers. And then it's going to be like, I get these 72-hour hangovers, right? I wouldn't wish them on anybody. Because in the old days, there were hangovers of the body. And I got the hangover of the mind. So like, the hangover of the mind is really bad because it's like, is that my wallet? That's not my Like, you're, you're going, I don't want to I'm not going to touch the wallet today. I'm not going to touch them. Like, like the phobias. I have like this amazing phobias. Like, of like really, what do they call like things that are just germane, just germane to everyday living? Like the like the, the mail will come through the slot, and I'm like, I will not go near the door. The door. And, like, <laughs> and that's a serious hangover because it's because now it's become a, uh, a mental thing, you know. But yeah. then I I'll straighten out for a while, and then uh, then I can I'll put the I'll put the wallet in my pocket. <laughs> it's really it's very really irrational, but these are real things. I mean, you know. Yeah, but those guys, those, those poor guys that I that you know I grew up with, like on South Street, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, they maybe they didn't they didn't get they didn't get these like uh, on a bot on a, on a fundamental level, like my mitochondria or something is like saying stop, Ken, stop. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of guys who don't get hangovers, you know, and so they just keep going, or, or whether it's drinking or there's other things too. Yeah, you know, I used to do like uh, opiates. I did, you know, and uh, they got to be unfun at the while. I started getting like not they weren't give. They weren't as fun as they once were. So in a way, I was blessed because I could have gotten. I did. I never felt I was hooked on anything. You know, I always did it because it was recreation. But I never. I mean, you know, like if, if I wanted a night to go on, yeah, we'd do it, man. You know. But the next day, I was broke and have any money to get it going. So, so in a way that you know, 
That's what happens. I think I told you my theory on the ATM machines tonight. You know. No, no, I don't think. Oh so. yeah, yeah. Like everybody has these stupid theories about the cocaine explosion in America, mm-hmm. and they blame it on this, they blame it on that. It was the Mac machine which started it because because if you were in, if it was 1977 and you had a couple grams of coke and you have a couple friends and you run out at midnight and you already owe money to the dealer. He ain't fucking spotting you any more coke <laughs> unless you got dough. So long, somewhere between 79, 80, these things popped up, these magical things called the Mac machine, which is the automatic telling machine, which exists today. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, somebody in the group had a job. Like none of us, none of us musicians had a job. But it was like one guy, you know, there's maybe a couple girls involved, and whoever this guy is, he's going... I'm going to score if I get this. So everybody's running to the Mac machine, getting another hundred, a couple hundred bucks. That's when the, the logarithmic explosion of cocaine was the Mac machine. That's the truth. <laughs> Look it up. I mean, it's not even, I, I know it because I was there. I, I, I was like, who do I know has a job tonight at midnight? So in case we want more, we're going to fucking, because I didn't even know what a Mac machine was. I was like, what is technology? Then I saw those hundred, the bills coming. I was going, you know, let's get this shit rolling. Let's keep it going. Yeah, so, I could see if you're planning for the weekend, like I'm only going to spend $100 on the, cocaine yeah, now, yeah. and the bank closes at 4 o'clock anyway, and yeah. I won't be able to get there until Monday. Exactly. But by then the you're Mac like, machine was yeah, there. And yeah. by, by Monday, you're like, man, I'm really glad I didn't pull out the couple hundred. <laughs> but now you're pulling it out, and the next week you go, I'm not going to do it again. Then you do it again. It went on all the time, and I was like fucking nuts. You know, that... Believe me, I, I haven't read that anywhere, but I, I witnessed that, you know. But people have all these, they're blaming this, they're blaming that. It was the Mac machine. It know? sounds kosher to me. Oh, totally. I mean, because I can remember there was one guy in the band that had a real job. <laughs> and he was the guy calling it a Mac machine all the time. But like, but I never, like I said, I never got really hooked on it. It was just the evening. You just get in the moment. You get in the zone, the Coke zone or whatever zone. But a lot of the guys that, on South Street and, that I played with, they... They just didn't stop. They just, you know, just... Yeah, I could see. If those flashing yellow lights don't flash for you, that's not necessarily a good thing. You know, you could be uh, going overboard, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, I always woke up, you know, I, you know, I have a pretty bad... Today's not the bad, worst hanger, but, I, you know, but I'm saying, like, you know, I'll probably have a couple of beers today. No, that'll be it. I'm not going to drink like I did yesterday. But I always have, like, a little... They actually call that a governor. I'm a governed by, by my uh, mitochondria. You know, mitochondria, like, you ever check those motherfuckers out, man. What's that? Mitochondria. There's a story about the mitochondria. They, they existed outside of, like, there's a whole story about, my, like, uh, you know, biological cells. And, and mitochondria were a totally different species. Uh-huh. But, they, but they're like the energy guys. They, like, they, they give us energy. Like, the queer mitochondria. But, like, somehow the cells needed the mitochondria. So they had, they had a deal. There's a deal went down between your cells and your body. And they invited mitochondria to live inside the cell now, but the cell has to do something for the mitochondria, and the mitochondria has to do something. For that. So, so like somehow on that level, when I drink too much, them motherfuckers, I got to compromise. I got. I'm the third motherfucker compromise. Mitochondria, <laughs> cell, and queeter. <laughs> I mean, I even I have to give in to those guys, you know. But check it out. Look it up. I mean, it's worth checking out the mitochondria, man. They're like, they're like, they're sort of like, they were like a rev- cultural revolutionist moved in, like changed the the. the yeah, the constitution of the cell, like, like, you know what I mean, like from 1776. But you know, but that's a true story. But I mean, you know, getting back to, to, to the guys, like a lot of guys are going, and I miss them. And I mean, they just kind of got they got loused up on stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, you seem to be in great shape. I mean, well, you're I, I, out and about. I, I, yeah. I am, but there was. I mean, one thing I did really dig. I did dig the crack thing. I got into that, right? But man, that was a great high. I mean, I was like, 
And I was coming home at like 5.30 with the birds chirping and all this shit. It was like, Were you going to crack houses? And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with an ex-police officer that I used to meet at a, at an after-hours bar. Like, I would do my uh, gig or I was bartending or whatever it was. Then I would go to this particular after-hours joint. This guy was always there. And then he's got, he knew, he, you know, he was, a police, he was an ex-police officer. So he, he had a relationship with a lot of some characters in some really difficult uh, areas. You know, there's no electricity. It's just fucking candles and shit. And I'm coming in with this guy. You know, and like, you know, you know, it was, you know, it was really exciting but dangerous too. So we did that a bunch of times. And then one day I came home, and uh, I remember that night I was having a problem singing. It was like my voice, you know. And the next day, I, you know, like there was a couple times where I was like, I think this shit's fucking with my vocals because you you suck that fucker down, and it, it can burn. Like, what's it, Sarah Silverstein just said that thing that happened to her? No, I hadn't heard. She almost died, you know. Oh, really? But, I mean, there's a particular thing that's in your throat that, that uh, it's, it's, it's called glottitis. Or it's this yeah. glottum, some fuck, I don't know. It, 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 it helps prevent things to go down into your lungs. Yeah. Well, if you smoke crack a lot, you can burn that thing and cause some problems. So, who knows if I burnt that? I don't know what I did, but I stopped. I literally just stopped. I think I did it one time, like, a year later. But... But I, I was, if I was ever hooked on anything, it was like crack. But you know, and uh, I made that decision. I was like, going, you know, I, I want to say, I want to, I want to, I want to be, I want to continue being a musician. Yeah. What are what are the people like in crack houses? Well, there's a, it's there's very, there's like, it's an all age group, and a lot of them are really young. I mean, it's like twelve year olds and sixteen year olds, and you have like twenty five. It's mostly really young folks, uh, and it's really. Um, it's desperate. It's like, no, I am. The thing is, because I was with the cop, they weren't going to fuck with me, you know. But I went with this other guy, because I was working at this other bar. And, yeah, I was always kind of guy walking around. Like, like if I, I was working at this one bar and I was doing really well. And, I, and, like, this guy worked at the bar, but he was a crackhead. And I knew, he knew I liked to do crack. So I went down with him in this bad area in South Philly. So we were in there. So... We wanted to buy. When you're doing it, you always you just keep buying more. You just can't help yourself. You but your own Mac machine's in your pocket. You know, it's like I happened to be a bartender at a great night. I had a couple hundred bucks on me, so I had a couple hundred. I had hundred dollar bills on me, right? So this dude, I don't know his name was Mike or whatever his fucking name was, but he was my connection down there. And there was like, I, I like there was just really young people getting fucked up. And uh, when I went to pull out the money for the the next batch. It flashed that I had a hundred, right? Yeah. Like you could see, I, I I tried to pull out twenty. Like I was trying to be this, like I don't want anybody to see I have a hundred, because this was a sketchy gang, you know. And everybody was really at the end of the rope there. Finally, we get out of there, and and we, you know, this guy had a car, and he goes, "Queter," he goes, he goes, "I saved your life." I go, "What?" He goes, "They saw that hundred dollar bill," and they, he goes, "I heard them whispering like we ought to." get this guy you know because they didn't know who i was you know so but he you know we did it you know i bought a little extra then we got out i never went back to but i'm saying they're tough tough places you know yeah. if you're going in and you're a stranger if you if you know people it's probably a different thing i always went in as a stranger was fucking nuts <laughs> but you know with an ex-cop, generally. It's, it's a, probably a good thing not to become the regular at the, yeah. <laughs> at the crack house where they know you. You should have seen the inside of these places. That like, sounds like a bad cheers where everybody knows your name. Like, you know, one time I was in there and they were like, like they had a fireplace and they were breaking off the couch and just flowing the shit in there, man. Uh, and like, uh, but only because I had like, you know, st- you know, I don't know if it's street cred or police cred, but I had somebody there to, 
you know. And then you know what? Then I stopped doing it. So I continued to go to the after hours joint because I was, you know, and that cop, he's going, you want to go? I can now. I'm kind of off. And he goes, come on, what's going on? The dude was old. It was no youngster. This guy was like already, I was like 40 something. He was like 60 or something, right? And he didn't look like he was in good shape anyway. So then I, I, I kept going back. And then one day I go, where's uh, so and so? And I go, you didn't hear about, you know, I go, what? He goes, stroke. You know, like, you know, going out with this shit, you know? So, so it's a, uh, no, but I had stopped. But he used to get mad. He's going, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" I go, well, "I'm like over it, dude. <laughs> I'm over. The, I'm over my crack epidemic, you know." <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool. I always say crack's no big deal. You know, it's like really no big deal if you have like like a uh, if you have a, a plan. You know, if you have a, a crack plan. You know, is that around the time you wrote your uh, crackhead on the lawn song? It was around that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Around that, within that year or two, yeah. Because people, they, the, the word crack is just a beautiful, like people, it's just one syllable. It's got these hard edges inside it. You know, C, then CK, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's an ad man's dream. Yeah. So I, I used to play around and do, uh, this crack is your crack, this crack is my crack, from Crackafornia. You know? And uh, people would sing along to that one. Uh, but that was my thing. But I, you know, but like I, I knew when to stop. I mean, I'm lucky, I guess. You know, kind of lucky. But you know, so I feel, I feel bad about the guys who are no longer with us who continued on. You know, you, know, you, you do get separated, but you will get separated from you know what it is that you love if if you have an, an addiction. You know, yeah. certainly heroin. I mean, definitely heroin, because I've seen a lot of great guys. That, that's the one that's gotten most of my friends. You know that one. Yeah. Because. Yeah. You know, I did that. I OD'd on it. And even though I OD'd, it was like 1987 at the cottage. And uh, Oh, really? And even though I OD'd, like, I remember when I finally came to, I like, I the guy I was with left me. I could have died. I went, and, and then uh, uh, I, I actually called people to drop me off, like, some kind of, like, it was so, I had done too much, and it was in my marrow. I had to get, uh, like, Percocets delivered to sort of chill out. Yeah. And I, I mean, I could have checked out and died. And for a good year, I was like, I did it again, and you know, a couple of times. And then I, um, uh, I just it started to bother my respiratory, and I said, "Fuck it, that's it." But even then, I still craved it. Yeah. So, like, I can remember like getting driven home half bombed and giving a cab driver who looked like, a, "Can you get me a bag?" And like, they never came back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I was glad they didn't come back the next day. So, but uh, but at the point because it still was in my it was still like it is an addiction problem that is yeah, you know, yeah. so but it took me about a year to f- never think about it again you know particularly when it was fucking with my respiratory that's not a good that's that's not a good thing you know yeah I had a friend who did crack once and he said for like the next you know month or so even even though he just did it once for the next month or so uh, there was a voice in his head saying I I think I know where you can get some crack oh yeah, totally. <laughs> said, oh, yeah. I recognize that as the bad voice yeah because. Um, the, the high of crack was the greatest I ever had, and you know. Then when you do, you just do more and more. It never reaches. It's almost like, you know, when you hit that hammer and it hits that bell. Yeah. The first one hits the bell, and the next one almost hits the bell. The next, it never hits the bell again. But, it, it, but then next thing you're just shelling money out. You know, I was like that. I wasn't like really, what's the word, obsessed. But I, I was thinking every time I went to the after hours bar, I was like, I was the driver. By the way, was driving. I was the driver too. You know, the guy loved me because I would drive to these places. So, but then, when then, then I just one day when I started to lose my voice, I was like, "Fuck," you know. I, I considered thinking. I did think about it. I was like, "Nah, that's it, man." You know, I'm done with that. You know. So, but yeah, there. When it gets in your, your marrow, you know. 
Are you ready to, 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 to wrap this up? Do you have anything you want to talk about before we go? Headlights. The headlights. The headlights. The, the headlights. Driving at night. Those headlights, man. They're like, people talk about secondhand smoke. Yeah. And, man, to me, uh, that's nothing compared to driving you, in you the must rain. You must be drawing a lot of drive after after the gigs on the way home. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, yeah, because it's scary because, like, a lot of these headlights, I'm driving on, like, uh, a lot of roads or, you know, like they, they, there's a lot of quick turns and shit. And they're like, these new headlights, I, I can't believe no one else talks about this, but I, I really think that uh, they should talk, they should set a standard for lights because seven years ago, eight, nine years ago, lights were kind of good, but they didn't blind you, you know, yeah, so. Yeah. And I don't know if that, I mean, I'm obviously getting older, my eyes are older, but there are some blinding lights out there. They call them halogens. There's lights? halogens and there's LEDs, I think. They're, oh, okay. And there's another one, too. And I'm telling you, man, you're coming home, particularly if it's raining, those lights, they, they starburst, you know. And they can block out the field of driving. If I'm driving on a road, the light will it'll hit me, and then it'll, it'll actually take over the entire windshield. It's like, whoa, what was that? You know, so I, I, I told my doctor about it. You know, I said, uh, like, it doesn't bother me if I'm drinking, you know, that much. And he goes, keep drinking. <laughs> I said, you didn't say it. You don't need to tell. He did. He, like, he, goes, he goes, don't tell anybody I told you. But doctor's I'm, orders. Yeah, doctor's orders. So, so I usually have a couple of beers before I hit the bike, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much what I, you know, it's good to see you again, Dan. I, I, Great to see you again. And, and uh, you, you are the most listened to uh, episode I've done yet. Your two episodes before, uh, you know, still seem to attract a lot of listeners. That's cool. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Ken, thanks so much for uh, coming back. Thanks for playing, uh, bringing your guitar this time. Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure. Thanks again. Appreciate it, man. One, two, three, four. That's it for our show. You can find out more about the delightful Ken Queter at kenqueter.com or at his Facebook page. You can catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast, always with the numeral two, at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST at WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.